0: today we're, it's our 300th episode guys Mm-hmm. which is crazy uh david you haven't been with us for all 300 also thomas actually hasn't been with us all 300 so i guess i'm gonna ask you do you guys remember your first episode you did
1: i mean I, I've, I've i've covered mine on here before but i only got on the podcast because i i saw an early screening of the martian <laughs> and you guys you guys needed somebody That's to exactly. tell you if the martian was good or not <laughs>
0: That's exactly what it was. That's exactly what it was. It was an episode called called Matt Damon and Other Things, if I'm not mistaken. Because cause I don't, David, if you've ever listened to those episodes. But like back in the day... <laughs> I, I,
2: to be completely honest, I did not go that far back. <laughs> it was basically like when I came and checked out the apartment, that's when I started. I think I, I went back on a couple of director episodes. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, the
0: show... It i don't know if it's still on i don't think it's on apple anymore you, you guys can tell me if you want to listen to these horrible episodes no they're not, they're not, they not all bad i just mean the audio to me is so bad in comparison to what it is nowadays um because we didn't know what we were doing and i didn't really know the audio design or, or audio kind of editing at that point but uh it was just kind of a show that we it was a topic of the week like what was going on in the industry and at that specific week when we brought it was about a year into the show's life uh thomas saw a screening of the martian yeah at the fox yeah, yeah. lot right didn't you get you get like access to it at the fox lot yeah it was, yeah, like it was an a early morning screening, screening. Yeah. and we we're like hey let's get let's let's come on the show and and uh talk about the martian and that was also hunter's first show as well uh we brought both of you on at the same exact time and that was uh, yeah, a year into the shift so that's probably like 2015 or so mm-hmm. whenever the martian came out um and then David, what was your first episode? Many years later. That was uh,
2: episode 185 Videodrome a look at David Cronenberg, but I was just interviewed.
0: You're interviewed. So if yeah. If you want
2: to count my actual first episode it was episode 209 The Killing 1956.
0: Uh, okay. Yeah, cuz Cronenberg cuz I we we were doing Cronenberg for body horror and I was just like, well David's going to know more about this than we are. <laughs> so, we we need to have some sort of context to like make sure what we're saying is like makes sense to people. Um and that he can have like a bigger, uh, can can kind of like lay the groundwork for David Cronenberg. Besides, like the book I was reading, um, because yeah. I think at that time of recording you had watched more than I have. I mean, you still have well, watched was, more than I have. I was writing a body
2: horror script, so I had just like coincidentally also been rewatching his films. A lot about Cronenberg stuff, yeah. yeah, yeah, and yeah
0: that yeah. so that's how you got on, and that was like a year after. I think it was a year after you moved in. Yeah, probably around that time That's but- what it was. Um, but yeah, so we so. You came in a different version of the show, as I said. Like the first version was the topic driven. They're not. I don't know if they're on Apple anymore. I don't, again, I don't know if you want to listen to them. If you want to, I've
1: I've I've gone back and found uh, some of the bad movie book club ones on like those random like yeah. podcast archive sites <laughs> that just kind of automatically yeah. grab podcasts and upload like, them. Occasionally, there.
0: what I'll do is I'll, I'll redo the the limit of episodes that can go on. And maybe I just put them all on there, but I read the limit of them to where like you can. Because sometimes they'll disappear on Apple if you don't like change the limit of it. But I've kind of kept those hidden just out of just me being insecure about the stuff. But maybe I'll add them back. Um, but what happens to if I do that? I think it like automatically adds to people's catalog. Like oh they're they're they uh, Oh. Their I always wondered why the fucking podcast app does that.
2: That's and what like, it is. It...
0: And and I guess I don't want people to just like get a bunch of episodes <laughs> yeah. all of a sudden <laughs> that are all. Especially if they like, have auto downloads on. <laughs> yeah i don't i don't know if i want that or not that's what i'm worried about if i if i add those but like it's great for our numbers when that happens but <laughs> but uh but yeah uh so yeah and then well i i'll ask more questions later about three episode. but yeah we, we've gotten to this point uh which is wild it's been it's been essentially i guess not a little over nine years or so when we started because i know ben 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 gertz and i who's been on the show previously on this current kind of incarnation uh we started as like a way to like he was in portland at the t- he lives in portland i live in la and we had just moved uh out of our hometown um and i was like oh this is, this is like a way to kind of keep in contact with like my friend um and that kind of kept being that way because we brought it we, we took a, like a two-year break at one point uh and we wanted to kind of redo the show and at that point thomas had moved to atlanta and I was just like, well, how can I keep contact with all my friends now? That they're all like in different cities. <laughs> let's just bring this. Sh- let's bring the show back. But we want it to be a genre podcast. Um, and we came with the wild idea that every episode we do a different genre. Which I don't know how we did that, Thomas. Um, and then COVID <laughs> happened and we kind of it kind of became what the show is now. We, if sh- it's alt- it's changed a little bit over time. Like we used to do like a, a intro episode with a bunch of movies for the genre and then we would do a director episode per month, which is a bunch of movies with that director. Um, and it's changed to where now we're just doing a genre month and kind of discussing movies in that genre. Uh, and occasionally doing director months as well. Um, but for this month, actually, before we do that, my name is Brian Sparks.
1: <laughs> I'm Thomas Horton. I'm David
0: Glenn the Fourth. There we go. And this is the Nation Podcast. Look at that out of the way. Uh, but this month, we're talking about kind of mob... Mafia movies. Um, so I'll ask I have both of you: When you think of mob and mafia movies, what do you think of?
1: Yeah. So I, I actually, um, I don't know if I've talked about it on here before, but I took a mafia movie class in undergrad. No, um, well, that this, was
0: this is a new one for me. I've heard all the other ones like Hitchcock <laughs> and Screwball. But yeah, I don't remember this one.
1: Well, this one was we had we had two two requirements for my film minor to take like foreign language film classes, and so I did Russian film. Uh, and Italian and our Italian cinema the, it changed the the I think she's still at College of Charleston but she was a great the the professor who was in charge of the Italian cinema studies
3: mm-hmm.
1: offered like she could only do like one class we were a pretty small program she could only do like one class a semester but she would change it every semester so it was yeah. you know it was it was Bicycle Thieves like the semester right before I, I did it but the semester that I took it was comparing uh, depictions of the mafia in Italian films versus American films
3: Hmm. so half
1: half the semester was american mafia films and we watched like a bunch of american mafia films we watched like two seasons of the sopranos together and then the second half of the semester was like italian mafia films and it was kind of like it so it was it was really cool the way they laid it out because you know the first half of the the Class was like, oh yeah, you know, Scarface, yeah, like Goodfellas, yeah, and then it was like, you got to the second half of the class and it was like, look how depressing and bleak and dark the mafia is in Italian media. Um, but we actually, I, 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 can't remember because I, di- we had to pick a director. And present on them, and I don't know how the my partner and I got Scorsese. Like I don't know how we, you know,
0: how do you have l- the luck of the draw on that one.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Like I feel like everybody would have been fighting over Scorsese, but we, we we presented on Scorsese, and so like like that was the first time, like outside of the class, like I watched Mean Streets like myself. Like that was the first mm-hmm. time I had seen Mean Streets because we were just doing like a, a full presentation on him. Um, so I can't remember if we did goodfellas in the class or if i watched it um for this but i mean i had seen it in uh in on tv and everything but a lot of the what i think about when i think about like mafia movies kind of goes back to that class because it was a lot of stuff i had seen before like the godfather and scarface but it was it was coming back at it specifically in this idea that like we as americans have romanticized this in such an yeah. insane way that it has like never been depicted that way in italian media before and uh so so it is a really interesting way to approach it
0: yeah and then david what about you,
2: you i mean, mean I, I i think i think of the channel amc because all they would ever play on the weekends was godfather one and two good <laughs> especially Scarfman.
0: thanksgiving especially thanksgiving yeah.
2: so that, i mean that's kind of was my introduction to all the, all these films um I'll never forget the first time I watched The Godfather. I mean, that was game changing, you know. I, mean, I was mm-hmm. young and I, didn't, I, you know, I didn't think they made movies like that, especially in, uh, you know, at that age. But yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's a great genre, and I, probably, yeah. probably at one point in my life, it was my favorite, uh, favorite genre. Subgenre. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I, I mean, Thomas brings up an interesting point with all this too. Is like the idea where like about an American movies, they kind of glamorize a little bit of the, of the mob, and I, I do think this month last last episode we talked about Scarface but it's always kind of the rise and fall of it is that it's so great you want to live that life but you kind of forget what happens at the end when they all like d- die or something basically is what mm-hmm. ends up happening or it ends up or not just die but also if it's like Pacino it's like it it's they're living but of what, what life are they living exactly like what life are they kind of end um, it's like the
2: corruption of the American dream um, especially yeah, in the no. case of, of Scarface the, the 80s yeah. ideal
0: of what the American dream was Exactly. And we've seen different kind of versions of this over time. It's like the the gangster mob genre started off in the, and the, it really rose during the great depression era in the thirties where, um, it was kind of like, they were considered kind of like local heroes in a way where they like gave almost like some gave the, uh, took from the rich, gave to the poor, or were, were basically poor kids that, that got big in their neighborhood all of a sudden it was the Jimmy Cackneys of the world. Um, like the angels with dirty faces or something mm-hmm. um, or roaring 20s. A- and you kind of saw they were, those movies initially were seen as kind of like lowbrow where they were violent, brutal movies. And I think later on as the genre progressed and as those filmmakers that grew up watching the original Scarface and those James Cagney movies, the Paul Mooney movies, um, little Caesar, they were like, well, how can we take that genre and put it in our context uh, and, and kind of what we, in some cases, what we grew up around and what we kind of saw. I think Goodfellas today, as we talk about, is kind of the prime example of that, of how can we humanize these characters is a big thing that kind of becomes part of of this whole kind of genre in the 80s and in the 90s. And that leads to the, today's movie of Goodfellas, directed by Martin Scorsese and released in nineteen ninety. Stars Robert De Niro, Ray Liotta, Joe Pesci, Lorraine Bracco, Paul Sorvino, and it's about the real life wise guy gangster turned informant for the government, and that's Henry Hill. And basically, the movie follows Henry Hill's life from 1955 to 1980, kind of showing these like chapters of what it's like to be a gangster, essentially. And then we see kind of the story of meeting all these different characters. The intricacies the details of this life before the kind of turn by henry hill to become an informant um and scorsese it also is based on a novel by nicholas Pileggi, who wrote wise guy who also co-wrote the script with with scorsese it's also produced by erwin winkler uh cinematographer by michael ballhouse an editor by edited by thelma shoemaker two of scorsese's biggest collaborators so with Goodfellas, we'll start with david what what's kind of your history with Goodfellas, david
2: yeah i mean i guess i've already sort of alluded to it but I've, i watched it on cable as a kid and then i got the dvd mm-hmm. and i mean I, I can't tell you how many times i've seen this uh countless and it's one of those movies like, going back to the cable idea it's like you could pop in at any moment and then you're, you're just hooked for the rest of it you know mm-hmm. sometimes i just throw yeah. it on in the background and then i would completely drop whatever i was doing and finish the movie because especially if you're near that like third act sequence you're you're hooked you're, you're in yeah um yeah and i'm and that and on, honestly on this watch that's kind of what impacted me the most is just the pace of this thing's amazing dude all, all the way through uh well, and know, that, that goes yeah. to thelma and and scorsese as well and and the writing but and, and the performances but yeah i mean i you know obviously as a reco- as any recovering film bro i still love scorsese and i still love this movie so <laughs> yeah
0: and then i oh, know thomas you talked about the class but is there anything else you want to add about kind of your yeah no exactly that
1: this this was one i i saw on on cable a lot growing up and it was always that kind of like maybe when i get old enough i can rent the you know the r-rated version (laughs) and, and see it but um but yeah, I literally last night, I went to a basketball game last night so I didn't get home until like 11, 1130. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to put it on and watch like the first two acts because like I've seen the third act so many times. I don't yep. I don't need to watch that. Th- Anytime the third act's on TV, I watch it. So I don't yep. need to watch it again. So I'm like sitting on my couch and the, you know, the title card for the third act pops up and I'm like, ah, damn it. I'm going to stay up and watch the rest of this. <laughs>
0: Well, the, he, he did his job because basically Scorsese, as we'll talk about later, is that like he said when he read the book, he's like, oh, the movie's the movie's the last day of a wise guy. He's mm-hmm. like, that's what we're building to. Everything in the movie is building to this moment of the kind of paranoia, drug, drug induced day of, oh, my God, what's going on? Mm-hmm. Um, you're building to that moment. Um, yeah, for me, I I saw it, I think, in high school is what it was like. Again, I, I mentioned this before where I, I went at one point around to like my teachers and said hey like what are movies i should watch and i feel like goodfellas is one of those movies that popped up uh by by teachers in my high school um and it's one that i think there were very few films like it before at least in terms of the way it's made the way it's told um and a lot of imitators after goodfellas like i mean even 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 to a point of like the TikTok thing of like you're probably wondering how i got here i'm not saying that's that's from goodfellas but it kind of feels like it's the like all my life i wanted to be a gangster it's the yeah. idea of, it's the idea of seeing a character at a place later on in the story and it's basically let's rewind the clocks back to how i got here that's that's kind of what this like is basically um, so it's become a part of our culture in a weird way, even unknowingly. Um, and I think I think the last time I watched it was we did it, uh, which is actually uh, many years ago now. But we watched it in a film class, Thomas at USC, the mm-hmm. ninety, the nineties film class. We watched it to kind of discuss it because it, it was comes out in 90s, so it's kind of the beginning of the decade, and it's kind of a good kind of benchmark of the transition from the 80s into the 90s um and we'll talk more also it's kind of a big transition from for Scorsese to be seen as just a filmmaker to being seen as Martin Scorsese Mm -hmm. that's kind of the key moment of all this so with that let's dive into the history of how it got into production so as no surprise we begin our story with the one and only Martin Scorsese And this is our third episode. We've talked about a Martin Scorsese movie. Uh, (laughs) First first one was After Hours. Second one was The Last Waltz. Uh, Those are our first Mm -hmm. two. And I think each of these films, they'll actually play a part in today's movie. They kind of signified a different specific point in Scorsese's career. With The Last Waltz, we talked about how Scorsese was kind of burning the candle at both ends. uh, Because he was making The Last Waltz and New York, New York around the same exact time uh at the in 1978 to release those two movies uh Scorsese found himself in the hospital due to his body failing him after years of drug drug abuse basically (laughs) New York New York was also considered a misfire so it's kind of a low point uh he would then make Raging Bull in 1980 after De Niro visited Scorsese at the hospital to convince him to make this movie Raging Bull would receive award nominations but It was kind of lukewarm in terms of reviews, and it wasn't a big box office success. So not a great beginning of the 80s. And then it gets worse with The King of Comedy, which we talked about in After Hours, how King of Comedy was so controversial and hated that many considered it one of the worst movies of the year. Uh, Scorsese talked about this recently in kind of the press tour for Killers of the Flower Moon is that it was on New Year's Eve in 82, I believe, when he was preparing to go out for a New Year's Eve party, and he had the TV on, and on the TV they are listing the worst films of the year and number one at the top was The King of Comedy and he was like, maybe I shouldn't go out tonight. <laughs> and so, and then not long after that, all that happens, his passion project of The Last Temptation of Christ falls through and gets canceled after it was possibly going to happen. So it that goes away. So again, Decade is not starting off well for Martin Scorsese, at least for the moment. Uh, he even thought about quitting the industry around this time uh he was up for several dir- directorial jobs one of which was beverly hills cop is what he said another one which i did not know about was witness thomas oh, oh wow he was up to do witness and i God, think that's that- a
1: completely different movie
0: it is and i think i think he was pretty close to doing it it sounds like or he was really interested in it but he ends up doing after hours instead which kind of sees a return to his roots of shooting this like gorilla style movie low budget in new york um, and if you talked he basically thought like i'm gonna make after hours it's probably my last movie ever is what he was thinking at the time but if you talk to his editor thelma shoemaker she says that he thinks about that every movie that <laughs> every movie he's making is going to be his last one they won't let him make another after this movie comes out um but after hours be, would be the first of two movies in the 80s that would kind of help scorsese get his credibility and confidence back the other one being the color of money starring paul newman and tom cruise which we briefly talked about way back in the day on like a sequel episode we episode we did and that was when we kind of mentioned um but when watching after hours and the color of money it feels almost like a dry run in terms of style for what he would do with goodfellas fast-paced street level stories with grit grind, and pop music basically uh, one reason for this was because it was the first two films that Scorsese made with famed director of photography, Michael Ballhaus. We discussed this in our after hours episode, as I've said many times, but Ballhaus has worked with uh, Rainer Werner Fassbender uh, in Germany. And Fassbender was known for moving at extremely fast pace, like really fast paced films. Uh, Ballhaus would make 13 films for Fassbender in 10 years before coming over to the States in the eighties. Now, there are several different accounts of this next part of the story so a lot of the research i got from this this episode came from glenn kenny's book made men the story of goodfellas uh and in his book he kind of says there's one indisputable part uh of the development story of this movie is that in january 1986 a review for the book wise guy life in a mafia family nicholas Pileggi's nonfiction book about henry hill a mafia associate turned informant was printed in new york magazine The other 100% true fact is that Scorsese was in Chicago filming The Color of Money during this time. Scorsese says he read the review of this book and was interested in the project pretty much immediately. Even though he originally didn't want to make another organized crime movie, he found Henry Hill to be a fascinating character. He was a foot soldier instead of a mafia boss, which is what we would seen mostly in mob movies. He said when he got the book and read it, he was hooked by Henry Hill's Last Day as a Gangster scorsese felt that was the movie he said he did not care anything about the heist aspect of the film and that's why he doesn't show it in the movie because it's like, is that important um well, and i think
1: there's also we, we, we can talk about this a lot throughout this one but you know there's there's yeah. this online crowd that's like oh scorsese only makes mafia movies when when it turned into this whole like uh online nerds versus scorsese war that's been going on for several years um <laughs> but but you know up until this point he had done i mean mean streets was probably his big one and and mean streets is about somebody who specifically like doesn't want to like mean streets is about being sucked into the life and like always wanting out and this is a like this is a completely different way to approach a story like this
0: yeah i mean as as i kind of mentioned the book uh glenn case is like basically goodfellas is he's it's like scorsese has like played with the idea of organized crime but this is his first legitimate like gangster mm-hmm. movie.
1: Yeah, yeah. Everything,
0: everything else has been peripheral. It's just been kind of off. Yeah. the side. Yeah. yeah.
1: Mean, mean streets is about yeah. like being stuck in a neighborhood where that's going on and like not trying yeah. your best to avoid it and like not being able to escape the violence. Yes. This is about like running headfirst into it.
0: Yes, exactly. Um, so that's the, that's, that's Scorsese's, um, version of how he got the, how he found out about the book um erwin winkler famed producer and sylvester loan's number one enemy because of his ownership of the rocky franchise uh <laughs> stated that he read the review of wise guy and he was friends with polegy and he contacted him about the movie rights and and basically nicholas his representation was caa so winkler called up his good buddy and legendary agent mike uh, mike ovitz about getting the rights and ovitz said wise guy was becoming a hot item in town and he would agree to option it to Winkler if he promised to help Lance Martin Scorsese as a client at CAA. Winkler agreed, and Scorsese, but Scorsese says he actually initially contacted Ovitz, not Winkler, about the book. So there's that. Hmm. And then you have producer Barbara Defina, who was also scorsese's wife at the time i apologize if i pronounced that name wrong um but barbara says that she was the first one to read the review for wise guy in new york (laughs) magazine and she gave it to scorsese to read and that she didn't hear anything about it till much later when scorsese was frankly trying to contact uh nick about the book now, Pelleggi's story is a mix of all these things. <laughs> um, but 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 let's talk about how Pelleggi got to the story of Henry Hill. So born and raised in New York City, Pelleggi was a reporter for the Associated Press during the 1950s. And Pelleggi, essentially because he grew up in New York around organized crime in, in the city, Pelleggi became a crime reporter. He said he started out working. And when he started out working, he started recently going to a restaurant in Little Italy that had become a mobster hangout at the time. And Pelleggio would become a re- regular at the restaurant. He even was able to get some of his family recipes on the restaurant's menu, which made the mobsters love him even more because they <laughs> liked the food. Uh, he said the kind of the, go- the golden days of the mob were the 1950s, and that would all come to an end in the 1960s due to several public trials and expose novels about the mob. By 1968, Pelleggi was working at the New York Magazine, and mob was a hot topic for the news. By 1969, the Godfather novel was released and became a bestseller, and according to Pelleggi, mobsters actually loved all this exposure. They (laughs) felt it made them look cool. Pelleggi says, instead of looking at the Godfather like this curse, they loved it. They were empowered by it. Henry Hill, his soon-to-be subject, told him when the movie came out in theaters, he was happy to be a gangster, and he never wanted to be anything else. For Hill, the movie was validation of his lifestyle. Now, after Hill was arrested in 1980 and decided to become an informant for the U.S. government, he and his family were placed in the witness protection agency. By the way, spoilers for the movie of Goodfellas. Um... (laughs) Uh, Pelleggi said the only reason why he was able to write Wise Guy was because Henry Hill defied the FBI and the Marshal Service by giving him his home phone number, which allowed Hill to talk to Pelleggi during the time in his pro in the program. Uh, Pelleggi said that when he started working on the book with Hill, he realized that Henry Hill was a born storyteller. While most mobsters couldn't rec- recollect what happened or chose not to tell uh, Pelleggi what happened during their lives, Hill was the opposite. Hill would tell you everything. He had all the details of what happened. Peleggi believes it was because Hill was considered an Irishman, meaning he wasn't fully Italian. Because of that, Hill had to talk his way into situations and talk his way up into the mob. Now he had this vocabulary and skill to tell Peleggi all of what happened to him during this time. So when Wise Guy was released in 1985, it would soon gain traction in Hollywood, as I was saying. Uh, Pelleggi said he would soon get a call from Martin Scorsese, but he missed the call and Scorsese left a message with his secretary. N- Nicholas didn't call him back because he thought it was one of his best friends pulling a prank on him. <laughs> the next, the next day, the same thing happened and he didn't return the call that night when he got home from work, his wife asked him, was he crazy for not? It was, was he crazy because he wasn't calling Martin Scorsese, his wife, of course, was another talented writer, Nora Ephron. Uh, she was already an accomplished news writer and screenwriter, having been nominated for an Oscar for her work on the 1983 film Silkwood. Uh, Ephron had a friend working on The Color of Money that called her, called her asking why Nicholas had not returned Scorsese's phone call, and that's when he immediately <laughs> called Scorsese back to talk to him about the movie. Now, uh, Pelleggi was a big fan of Scorsese and he felt that he was the one filmmaker who could tackle the movie. The other filmmaker who could possibly tackle the movie was Brian De Palma. And De Palma <laughs> was heavily interested in the film, but Pelleggi said Scorsese was kind of the guy. De Palma was kind of the, the second one up if, if Scorsese didn't want to do it. Uh, so Pelleggi agreed to Scorsese that he would back him for the movie, uh, with CAA and Erwin Winkler Uh, And that's how Scorsese got attached to the project. Now, next, Pelleggi and Scorsese would agree to write the script together. They said it'd be best if they both went back to the book individually and picked the sections of the book that they felt would be best for the movie. When Scorsese and Pelleggi came back to each other with their own outlines, they realized they unknowingly picked the exact same scenes from the book. (laughs) Completely overlapped. Nothing was different. And that's how they started writing the movie together. And Pelleggi would actually man the typewriter when I guess Scorsese would kind of talk through ideas. Uh, But Scorsese would type out the songs he wanted from the movie in the (laughs) margins. Pelleggi said he saw one thing that said cream, and he didn't know what that meant. Um, (laughs) And then he found out later. Once they had a script, Scorsese was met with a very big decision. After the success of After Hours and the Color of Money, he was able to get funding, finally for the last temptation of christ. He said before the funding came in even though he had a script he was still questioning if he should do another crime movie. He said he talked to Marlon Brando about it and Brando advised him not to do wise guy, um which was now called Goodfellas because of a television show called Wise Guys that came up came out in I think 87. Um with Brando's words on mine and the funding finally coming for Last Temptation, scorsese decided to put goodfellas on hold and go make last temptation first now after finishing last temptation of christ scorsese was still having reservations about the movie about goodfellas he said he was possibly up for directing schindler's list at the time and he was thinking about doing that instead which that's a whole other different timeline (laughs) um he he it seems he was kind of worried about being typecast as a crime director as we're kind of talking about maybe predating the marvel fanboys of being uh uh, <laughs> Kind of putting him in that category. He said Goodfellas was a good script, but he already had the movie mapped out in his head, and he wondered if it was better just to kind of stay that way, in that state of mind, just in his head for him to enjoy. Now, Scorsese's editor, Thelma uh, had her husband, Michael Powell, read the script. And for those who don't know, Michael Powell, of Powell and Pressburger, was one of Scorsese's biggest influences. He made some of the, Scorsese's favorite movies, including probably scorsese's favorite movie the red shoes
3: mm-hmm.
0: and scorsese gave him the script and he says Powell was not really a fan of gangster films certainly liked them and after reading the script Powell called up scorsese and said you have to make good fellas <laughs> and hearing that that kind of shifted scorsese back to his original energy and mentality it was time to make good fellas and with that he started casting the movie and the first person cast was joe pesci now pesci was also reluctant to take the role because growing up in new jersey around all these mobsters i think he was kind of worried about the the image that it would portray for him i think there's been history that pesci had ties to the mob uh that's caused kind of controversy that he's kind of been outspoken about that why kind of he doesn't do interviews is because of this possible tie that people kind of keep referencing but because he, he started and, working in
1: the uh in the four seasons
0: and the Four Seasons, that's what I'm about to bring up. Is that the Four Seasons, <laughs> he was around when that happened. Also, Pesci was part of a comedy duo around this time that would kind of ran the, the circuit and in in kind of the mob area in the entertainment industry at this point. Uh, his acting partner was Frank Vincent. And you might not know him by name, but you know him in Goodfellas as Billy Bats. Mm. So Billy oh. Bats, that's that his longtime friend, Frank Vincent. Mm-hmm. Um, finally when Pesci agreed to do the movie he sat he down and said hey let me tell you some stories to see if you want to use them for the movie one of them of course was the original and now iconic scene how am I funny funny how funny like a clown mm. funny because apparently that happened to Pesci in real life he was a waiter at the time when he told a mobster that he thought would be a compliment that he was a funny guy and the mobster went at him constantly about how was he funny Uh, scorsese would later write that into the script after improv session uh, of that scene next on scorsese's list for casting was henry hill and one of the names that people were pushing for scorsese was tom cruise but scorsese felt he wasn't right for the role Uh, other actors apparently rumored for the role of henry hill or kind of talked about were val kilmer uh, alec baldwin and sean penn But the actor who lobbied probably the hardest for the role was Ray Liotta. Liotta had broken out in 1986 with Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, and the year before, he had read Pelleggi's book, Wise Guy, uh, and loved it. And when he heard that Scorsese was making it, he attempted to get the role. After auditioning for the role several times, Scorsese felt Ray Liotta was perfect for Henry Hill, but film's producer erwin winkler didn't think leota was right for the role plus he wasn't a big star like tom cruise Mm uh one (laughs) night when he was when he was out to dinner winkler saw ray leota at the same restaurant and leota came up to him said hey i know you don't want me for this but let me tell you why i should be this part (laughs) and for 10 minutes he convinced winkler of why he was perfect to play henry hill the next day winkler called up score says he said hey you're right leota's the guy and that's how leota got the role of henry hill for the role of karen hill the same people who were pushing for tom cruise were pushing for madonna to play henry hill's <laughs> henry hill's wife but scorsese apparently felt she wasn't right for the role uh the role ended up going to lorraine brocco lorraine had actually auditioned for after hours but she didn't get it uh scorsese, scorsese told her that she, he would keep her in mind for other roles and she thought that's what everybody says and then, <laughs> and, then, and then that actually happened with this uh with the casting of all those characters the studios were like we still need a star in this movie because pesci wasn't a star leota wasn't a star we need someone here because as you remember while scorsese wasn't in movie jail anymore he wasn't exactly a sure thing in terms of box office after the failure of the last Page of christ so scorsese would now switch it up how de niro came to him for raging bull scorsese now came to him to make goodfellas to play jimmy conway and at the time de niro was making we're no angels with sean penn oh. in 19- <laughs> 19- classic yeah and he read the script and basically de niro agreed to make the movie and the budget that thing was 16 million dollars i believe jumped to 25 million dollars with the addition of robert de niro because from raging bull goodfellas de niro became a movie star and so he flew to new york to begin prep for the role and now with the cast in place a script mostly finished, as we'll talk about later and a budget of 25 million dollars goodfellas would begin production and that takes his two favorite scenes finally so who wants to go first on favorite scenes
1: i mean this this is going to be a tough one because i could sit <laughs> here and like do all of them but right, um m-
0: minute one the the first opening titles
1: um i mean i think i i i I do love the i i love kind of the opening of like his his childhood um and and the way it's told but i think it 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 does such a good job of of easing you into it you know in the much in the way that henry was eased into it of like yeah oh these are just like a bunch of of good old boys and and like they've got this this club and they're you know they they might be kind of tough but they're pretty good guys they appreciate family and they're all italian and they all get it and um and i mean i think this movie does overall you know scorsese is always someone who who you know grew up around organized crime and has mm-hmm. a very uh You know he's he's got a very critical mindset of it. Yeah. Um. But I think that the huge moment in the intro is is grabbing the postal worker and Mm. (laughs) threatening him as you're like oh this is getting real like this is not just like getting to drive nice cars and and making a little bit of money.
2: I I love how that's also Polly Walnuts from The Sopranos that's grabbing the the (laughs) mailman. Yeah. It's like dude. It's funny seeing how many people yeah. from this would go on to be in the Sopranos. <laughs>
0: well, I'll ask you, because I had this for later for a film fact. Can you guess how many actors are in this movie that were in Sopranos? Four. <laughs> no.
1: Oh, okay.
2: higher? higher or lower? Higher. Oh, yeah. higher.
1: Oh, sure. higher. Much higher. Uh, Much higher. All those guys in the New York acting scene, I'm sure they got yeah. rolled over into the Sopranos. At least a dozen.
0: 27. Holy <laughs> shit. 27 yeah david i didn't chase, think about all the
2: people in the bar would yeah was, they yeah, had to have yeah. been extras at some point it.
0: <laughs> well the pit the pittsburgh guys leon or it's leon from the Day Trippers. did you notice that thomas yeah yeah, yeah, yeah I, truck, was, I, was, I was like but he, he's i think he's in sopranos as well but yeah david chase of sopranos who, who created it said basically without goodfellas there'd be no sopranos and that's why you see all these different actors um in this movie in this movie are in sopranos um yeah what i love about the, the kind of the, the teen years of Henry Hill. Like I said, it definitely, there is like a weird, like warmth to this, to it in a way. Like you're yeah, saying I mean, like, you
1: know, this, the, I think the way that, that this movie tracks, like chronologically, the, the way that you can become, you know, you can, you can realize you can see, start to see the grime, you know, but it's also, it's, it's showing, you know, that you can start to see the grime in this underworld as it's also showing kind of the way, we view you know like the 50s were very wholesome and then it's like all into the 80s that that were just like trashy uh he he uses those time periods to also kind of show us the way that you could get it you know you could slowly start to realize how kind of seedy and and Mm-hmm. insidious this life is. And so yeah, when you're back in the fifties and you've got that music playing. I mean, you know, one thing Scorsese he's always gonna do is like nail the soundtrack. Yeah. And uh it just seems nice. It just seems like a good time. And everybody they're just hanging out and and messing around with each other and like, yeah, maybe like one guy shows up and he got shot in the hand, but like he's fine. They took him to a hospital. Like it's all good.
0: <laughs> he used all the good aprons. Like, he used so aprons. <laughs> um and also I want to bring up, we didn't, we didn't, but really the opening opening is it's the, what you find out later is basically them burying the body of Billy Batts but actually mm. the, the killing of Billy Batts Cause he's not dead by the end. And he had the opening like, all my life. I wanted to be a, a gangster and the, and the freeze frame and everything. And what I think is so great about the movie watching it this time is the subtlety in its structure. Because mm. while it could be seen as different, like just like, pieces here a chapter here blah, blah blah that moment right there it's like it's it's the beginning of the movie it's also the midpoint of the movie and mm-hmm. it's it's the moment where henry kind of begins oh we're kind of in deep shit here
1: yeah exactly like that yeah. that's his first moment of like really yeah. questioning it and so yeah it's such a good place to start to be like hey listen i promise this this seemed cool <laughs> like when i first got into yeah, this it all seemed that's what forward. that's
0: what he's thinking The moment, like, oh crap yeah. how did i get here yeah yeah, it really is the like you're probably wondering how I got here. That's like what it's saying in that moment. Um, and we and we had the whole kind of look flashback of all that stuff before. And you see that I think you see when they introduce uh Leota uh outside the diner outside the airport, like it's referencing what the heist is gonna be later, basically. It's saying, like, oh, we can kind of rob the airport pretty easily. Like it's pretty it's just like we need a little money, let's go rob the airport. Um, but before all that, the way he, the way they introduce characters, specifically where they, they introduce De Niro as mm-hmm. Jimmy Conway, like, I think they call him the Irishman, which is kind of the funny, now the meta, meta aspect of it with the Irishman, with De Niro as the Irishman there, um, is that he comes in like, even though he's not the top guy and he'll never be the top guy, mm-hmm. he still has this like, respect amongst the community of uh, being jimmy conway mm-hmm. de niro at 29 years old as they say um, <laughs> but uh th- and here you here you're just like cool we'll just go with it we'll roll with it um
1: i think i think uh uh tommy being 20 or whatever he's supposed to be when we first <laughs> see joe pesci as him is, yeah. is a little bit more egregious but I, yeah. I,
0: I, I laughed i was like there's no way there's no way because like pesci's pesci's supposed to be like four years older than leota basically yeah.
1: it's like they're both teenagers and then we the jump sa- forward to Ray Leota, and then it's like joe pesci and you're like oh okay <laughs> <laughs> all right um
0: but yeah the way i introduced leota both times when he's older like I, I there's been a reoccurring kind of topic on twitter right now about like how people don't know how to introduce movie stars anymore and they're talking about John Wayne stagecoach. We're talking about Tom Cruise and days of thunder. Like, I mean, days- you're talking
1: about, we, we just talked, uh, I guess on the Patreon, but we talked about, you know, De Palma kind of launching De Niro, but it's yeah. that shot. It's that shot in mean streets that makes De Niro. Oh, yeah. A, yeah. the superstar, like,
0: yeah. This jumping the Jack jump, flash. yeah. Jumping yeah. Jack flash as he comes in the bar, like, you know, and, and here, Leota, where it's like the, it's the, 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 the camera looking up diner in the background, like this guy's the star like leota mm-hmm. like he makes leota a star in that one shot and but they're talking about how like we don't have directors that know how to do that or choose to do that they're confident to say hey this is a movie star you're you're watching
3: mm-hmm.
0: um and scorsese does and especially does here um but yeah then we get them older um and i love uh again kind of uh, well, well, basically, we jump right in very early on, the Pesh the funny Hal scene mm-hmm. with Pesci. Yeah. So, yeah, someone take on that one because I've been talking a lot. So, like, <laughs> like, like, why why that one? Why is that one a fun one?
2: I mean, it's it, like it's probably like the most known scene from this movie, I'd argue. Um, mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, the way that it balances tension and, and humor is, is a masterclass. And it's really like looking at it, it's really like just really two shots. You know, it's just like cut. Cut back and forth, and the team just still feel the tension. Uh, But yeah, I mean, Pesci nails the scene. I'm sure that they uh, rehearsed that, and uh, you know, like you said, they they wrote it into the script after the rehearsal. But I, you can, you still feel like it's happening in the moment. You
0: know, yeah, Um, and 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 Scorsese smartly, he actually shot with two cameras because he said if you just shot with one and then shot the other person with the with that camera, like they just went back and forth, it wouldn't have the same pace to it because mm-hmm. like you can feel like the air just goes out of the room
3: mm-hmm.
0: when he keeps going and you don't know like what's gonna happen and It establishes again kind of the the questioning that the, the paranoia that will kind of pop up throughout the whole movie i think from all these characters and also um, that she's hot-headedness uh, exactly
1: yeah yeah, and it's you, such you, a it's such an interesting evolution of the character, because I mean, this this is an evolution of De Niro's character from Mean Streets is just like how exhausting it is to have a friend who like you never know when he's going to like explode yeah. But with with De Niro's character in Mean Streets, it was always like, he's going to drag you in. When he explodes, he's going to drag you into something. But there was never this threat of like, when he explodes, it might be aimed directly at you. You know? It's like, you're never safe around this guy. He might seem like he's your best friend, but but you never really know where you stand with him.
0: Yeah. And... And then right after is like the guys like, oh, let me find, it t- let me let me ask him about the money he owes me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it just again switch. It, is it he can switch in the dime of like beats him up or, or yeah, basically it breaks the glass on on or the glass out over him. Uh, and yeah, it's just it's a great scene. It's a great scene. Um, and then right after that you have the sequence of when Henry meets Karen. And here's the thing why I love. One thing I love about Goodfellas is that you can tell it's made by someone who fully understands cinema and what you can do with it. And I know that's a, a earth shattering here to thing to hear about Scorsese, but like he knows to where he knows how far he can push the boundaries of what an audience can handle and like kind of how to break the rules a little bit. Like you're switching narrators 35 minutes into the movie. Mm-hmm. where now karen's narrating it and she and she narrates a good section of this mm-hmm. movie um but i love the narration switch of when they have the date and then specifically i, I love the scene when she confronts him at the cab stand about oh, him yeah. him uh standing her up because it's uh, their, their their chemistry is fantastic hmm and you see how the way, getting, the way
1: he's just like immediate when she starts yelling at him he's like oh oh i'm into oh, okay. this now
0: Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> before it's like this just this goody girl like i don't want to be with this person blah, like how can i get out of here and then once she shows up he's like oh my god she's kind of sexy like she's in like a different type dress like this red dress and 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 the way she's playfully like like oh like she she goes from being upset to being almost flirtatious by the end of it,
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh, with him, because it's like they're both turned. And then she keeps saying the entire time, like, no matter what he does, like I'm still attracted to him. Yeah, when, when, when he, he t- asks her to to take the gun, <laughs> with yeah. all the blood on it. Uh, yeah,
2: but no, I, I think what's smart about this sequence too is it echoes his introduction into the world, and by showing it through her eyes, we now see how he, she's pulled into this criminal underworld. You know?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I the, the the similarities aren't they're not as many similarities in this movie with this but there's so many in this movie after watching Killers of the Flower Moon <laughs> that I feel like he's hearkening back to in that movie to this oh absolutely I felt so way. watching
1: watching it this time too i was just like this this is the first time i've like sat down and watched it in a really long time and i'm like man he really did just like and no no disrespect but he really did just like run this movie back with wall street (laughs) and like and like there's something he's saying with wolf of wall street about like look how like the 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 new crime is like white collar now like it's basically it's basically the mafia it's just you know somewhat even more legal now but um but it's a lot of the same beats and everything
0: i mean i mean you could argue that it's kind of if you put goodfellas with wall street and killers of fire moon it's kind of an unofficial trilogy
1: mm-hmm. of... about ways white men have found ways to skirt the law for, <laughs> yep. <laughs> forever
0: yep how lo- and how like, they end up going down at the end of the movie most in all cases mm-hmm. but people are still like well they glamorized them <laughs> like it's because this ends in a court case just like killers of our moon does i can't remember if wolf of wall street ends in a court case but does end up showing him in jail Mm. um but uh but yeah it's like there are a lot of similarities here and this the way he introduced i guess all these kind of romances in all three of those movies there is something there where like you can tell these characters are like gonna butt heads at some point but the attraction's just immediate. It's again, it's mm-hmm. Lily Gladstone and DiCaprio in the taxi, and and she's kind of like, oh, this this crazy white man. Basically, is what's it's mm-hmm. coming off as. But there's still something about him that's attractive to her. Attraction, attracting to her. So, so yeah. But I think those scenes great. And then we hop into again. We'll we'll skip some of these scenes at some point. But like the oneer at or there's the there's the oneer I love into the bamboo lounge. Yeah, the Copacabana shop? Well, no, there was the one. The oh, oh was, you're talking about
1: like introducing the, all the mafia gangsters. guys, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, all the guys. yeah, yeah, yeah
0: that's, that's great. Jimmy like, two, Jimmy two times, times, yeah, Jimmy yeah. two times. <laughs> I'm gonna get the papers. Get the papers.
1: Is that, is that the guy from Sandlot just grown up and then joined the
0: mafia? <laughs> <laughs> um, but that seems great, and, and and that's all. That's a very hard shot to pull off too. Um, but yes, in the in the Coba Cabana shot, which is what I love about it is that it's simple, but still elaborate like it seems so easy but it's not easy and if you watch that take it's that i think they did like eight times and the take they use i don't think leota was supposed to run into he runs into a piece of the kitchen equipment at one point mm. that almost like throws off the scene but he does it he, he he bounces back very quickly but that's a great i mean it's a fantastic shot like it's one that everyone will always talk about and i had heard there was a rumor at one point i heard that like it was a competition between him and De Palma of who could do the longest one -er. (laughs) And that's, and that's why the camera kind of just sits there for a while. So he could beat De Palma's record. There was something, I don't know how true that is, but that was a a rumor I heard. Like, that's why it like stays on them at the table for so long. And the whole scenes in one shot was to like, kind of beat De Palma. Hmm. Um, Do you guys have another scene? I
2: love the, I love the introduction to Maury that like shitty commercial Maury's wigs. never lose your wig. (laughs) But I Jumping mean, into the it, pool. but like, uh, I, to your point earlier, like, uh, the subtle structure of this thing, I mean, it really is broken into sequences. Like, you could, yeah. you could sit there and, and, and break it down. And I think this leads yeah. us into the obviously, leads us to the hike. heist sequence, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the violence in this movie is just so visceral. Um, pistol whip it, scene, it, it, pistol it, whip oh, scene is amazing. Like, you really feel it. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's the larger point of, of uh, not, not glamorizing these guys, even though people
0: tend to do that when they watch it. Thomas, do you have another scene? i mean yeah if, if we can
1: go on to the christmas scene uh yeah yeah i love the the christmas party scene uh you know it's that it, it that that for me is the uh, is de niro's funny how like the the hey, don't oh. get so upset what, were you were you telling me not to get so upset what did i tell you <laughs> i told you one thing don't buy anything it's <laughs> under my mother-in-law's name um and then the guy comes in with a mink coat like immediately afterwards
0: <laughs> what are you doing what are you doing take it back
1: take it back and it's you know it's it is you know I think the the third act because we're we're more in like Henry's mindset like the third act kind of unravels you know like a nightmare for us it's like everything is so out of my control I thought I had every I thought I had my finger on everything but like this this second act is that happening for De Niro Mm -hmm. is like I thought I had everything I had my plan down I got like I got a little bit bigger and now i just i can't control any of this and it is all spiraling and yeah. i have to do something to get this back under my control and that you know leads us to the layla sequence which is which is incredible like yeah just
0: the yeah kids. one of the great needle drops
1: yeah. Yeah. yeah and the kids walking up to the pink corvette you know it's it's the the with, meat with, with locker with
0: the yeah, carbon the, and the meat <laughs> locker but 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 on the the pink the 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 uh the car still has like the the sale information on yep. the car. Oh yeah
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah But that that shot into the meat the like crane yeah. Oh, yeah. Slow. down over the crowd and then they open yeah. it up and then it, the camera pushes all the way in. It's it's insane.
3: Um, and yeah.
1: that that one that that's such a good way to uh cap off I think that sequence too because I mean he's been Carbone's like been like you know, he's he's like their fourth guy. Like he's always around like you are yeah. like oh yeah. they're not going to kill him, you know and bam and it's just like no nobody's and,
0: and, safe and yeah that's yeah that's when you realize no one's safe
1: mm-hmm.
0: no one's safe at all um and then beforehand you get the sunshine your love sequel like when he's yeah. smuggling. that's when like the paranoia is like i'm gonna do all this shit. that's kind of where you're like when he you're realizing you're he's about to go <laughs> off yeah um but uh, I'll, I'll backtrack real quick of one thing I want to... Like, the Billy Bat stuff is great. Yeah. The mm-hmm. whole... I love that
2: needle drop, too. Atlantis, man. Like,
0: no it, <laughs> it feels like well, it should
2: be out of place, but it, like, emphasizes the violence.
0: Well, well, no, but with that song, too, I think, again, Scorsese's very particular about the song he chooses. And that's the first song where you realize, you, you, you realize, oh, we're in a different time. Yeah. it's mm-hmm. the 60s oh, yeah, yeah, now. yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we've been doing all the kind of, like, 50s, early 60s music, like doo-wop, the 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 kind of singing groups and that song comes up you go oh this is different it's like these guys
1: are still dressing the same they're still doing everything the same but like culture is changing around them Mm -hmm.
0: and that song comes in where it shows this is the shift and then you have the scene after which is great when they go and meet pesci's mom or they go (laughs) to pesci's mom played by martin scorsese's mom uh, where that's the scene they basically just ad-libbed throughout on on the day yeah, they had like this. one
1: i love this this one's looking this way oh, yeah, this I'm looking I'm
0: with... <laughs> yeah but but what i love is that in that moment henry Hill's not speaking She said, like, why aren't you talking but it's like you can see him leota as an actor great in this moment kind of seeing him going like what do we do here he's like billy bats is a made man yeah everything else we've done beforehand we can get away with this is the one thing we can't get away with. And we just did. And are we screwed by association? Because well, on the,
1: the, the, like politics, the dynamics here are so yeah. interesting. Cause he Henry is like the closest tied to Polly. Like, like, you know, Jimmy's in with Polly, but yeah. Jimmy's always like, Jimmy does his own thing. And Tommy is like Jimmy's soldier. Yeah. And, but Ray Liotta, Henry has always kind of lived in this between world where he's like, Pauly really loves him. Yeah but he is he can't he can't be made he can't really be like one of paulie's guys because he's half irish and so it's like yeah. you kind of have to be in jimmy's crew because you're part irish and jimmy's the irishman but then it's yeah. like henry's really not cut out for like the kind of work that that, no. that 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 jimmy and tommy do and and that's when he's really starting to realize it is like oh i'm stuck on this like wing i'm never gonna be like I'm never going to be the type of guy that gets to sit back and like be have his hands be completely clean. Like that's, nope. that's ne- that's not going to come my
0: way. Yeah.
2: I'm always going to be this dirty. Si- And this whole situation forces him to lie to Polly, who's like sort of his, his father figure. Is,
0: mm-hmm. is pointing yeah. Out. Yeah. Um, very much so. And then, cause then you have them in jail together where they're cooking in jail, which is a great sequence, but the sequence I love again, right after this, right after the, the music change and the kill happens, you have, the scene back at the copacabana i think it's the last scene at the copacabana where it's the girlfriends mm-hmm. and it's the uh, jerry val jerry valley or where jerry val the the song is pretend you don't hear pretend you don't see her as a song and in that moment it's scorsese basically saying the good times are over yeah. you have that long dolly to show everyone as they're kind of listening to the song and it's this moment of saying like we've we've left one world and and we're entering into a new one
1: yeah and that you know that this we're pushing through that facade of like oh we're good guys we you know we're good uh italian yeah. catholic guys we love our wives you know we, we just we might get into a little bit of crime but we're like men of honor and everything it's like no no no, no. Yeah. these guys are all trash
0: it's like they're on borrowed time now is what it feels like um and then and then to jump ahead uh after the layla stuff it's it's the pesci getting getting whacked mm-hmm. scene um where it's that that scene's great because and that's become like the, the biggest meme of the entire film i think now is like everyone knows what that means when so it's like anytime like something happens like oh this guy walking into the 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 locker room the next day and it's the Pesci mm-hmm. walking into the empty room, but yeah, it's, I was
1: trying watching it this time. I was trying to put myself back in the mindset of seeing this for the first time, because there's, I mean, they, there's really nothing to indicate that that's going to happen there. No. He's telling you, Henry's telling you how good it is to be made. Like the music's like very happy. It's Joyous, like, this yeah. is, yeah, we're, we're finally going. And I, and you know, I've seen it so many times now as soon you get this feeling in the pit of your stomach, like, Oh, this is where it all starts to fall apart. But, um, yeah, it, it, I can't even remember watching this the first time, and I mean, it's got to be a gut
0: punch. It is because it's and I like think, he, I
2: think it's even for, uh, made worse with De Niro's reaction after. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. see how much yeah, De
0: Niro's yeah. Yeah. so good after this scene; he's so good. Like, I here's my question: Pesci wins the Oscar for this for this movie. Mm-hmm. De Niro's not nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I think De Niro's supporting over lead here, even though he's top billed. They wouldn't have they wouldn't have done him for supporting though. But if you had to pick between supporting actor here, is it Pesci or De Niro? Because they're both very different performances, mm-hmm. but they're both really good. I think Pesci's a little more showy, and that's why he wins out. But De Niro's really good.
1: Yeah, De Niro doesn't have a whole <laughs> lot of dialogue in this. No. You know, it's, it's 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 Jimmy's kind of always like he's in a bunch of scenes, but yeah. he, he's he's a quiet guy what it's well, you know. kind of get the
2: sense he's a puppeteer you know like he's yeah. he's, yes. he's standing back and controlling or trying to control
1: i love yeah. that i love his delivery in the the uh yeah, forget about the night you know with yeah. the mori stuff and he's like yeah hey, you know what? <laughs> forget about back. the night
0: and that moment you're like oh that's great like you <laughs> you believe him when he says that
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Well, well if, he, I I honestly think he might have let Mori slide if he hadn't have busted his balls again. Out, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> I actually agree with you. I, like, I agree I, with you.
2: I think there was some sort of like, you know, maybe just sitting around the table with everyone, there was some sort of camaraderie where he was like, you know what? I'll let it go. I'll let it
0: go. Yeah, and we're then having fun. Then he, then he just had to do it again. <laughs> busted yeah. Balls again. And that's what he <laughs> kind of says. Like, you just had to keep yeah. doing it. He had to keep asking about the money. But <laughs> but De Niro, it's just, it's again, if the movie plays to their strengths.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: pesci is more of the talker in all of his movies he's more of the talker and it plays to his strengths in that way how he can turn the temper can turn on and off very quickly de niro is more of the subtlety um we'll talk about later is that he's more into gestures and looks and the physicality of it and that's what jimmy is all about here
1: and the he he's in that era of legitimate, legitimacy, like like Pesci is this idea of like oh like your street level gangster like you gotta mm-hmm. watch out for these guys, and Jimmy is this guy that's like hey he's he's like a businessman that's got his hands a little dirty like you can yeah. trust him and then you know the, then you get uh you know the maury stuff or or the the Karen. i mean i, I the, that's jumping forward a little bit but the scene with karen with the coats is like oh, where she's like oh he's just like he's just a family friend he's just gonna help us out and then she has this moment of like oh no this is this oh, guy yeah. would kill me and he's a shark he would kill me in a second if yeah. he thought it would protect him
0: no yeah. and that's a, and that's a great sequence too and that i guess they'll ask me let's go to the third act here let's go to the fi- <laughs> final day onward uh, pick a moment that you guys want to discuss here. David, you want to go first? Sure. I mean, I just love, I just love that shot of him driving and like
2: looking up at the <laughs> helicopter while he's cooked out. Yeah. It's amazing. Uh, like Leona, Leona just kills this whole sequence. Like you, you, you see his uh, spiral, yeah. but he- visually him doing it through acting as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's it's just brilliant. But but I love that setup of wait, what- what's that helicopter doing here? It's been following me. What's going on?
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great, Thomas. Le-
1: i mean i think i think thelma this is like one of the best sequences of her career but um but it's a it's the the cut and it's the soundtrack it's the way scorsese's like mixing multiple songs and like just moments from songs into other songs um it's 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 just such a you feel so out and, and it's and it's how sweaty ray liotta is and the 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 uh, voiceover, you know, he's always and, and now I, anytime something gets added to like what he has to do, he's recap And now I gotta yeah. go check the sauce and, uh, <laughs> and I gotta do this. And um, but I mean, there's just I was watching it this time for like the just the, I, I saw somebody recently post a cut from early in this where Paulie is is having a conversation and it cuts away and it cuts back. It's when they're talking about the tiki bar and he's got his his cigars gone and somebody yep. was like, you know, film screen maker like doesn't really care if the cigars in his mouth, it's... she wants the best cut and she knows that you don't care. Yeah. Um, and there's, there's some cuts that just like shouldn't work in this sequence. There's yeah. the, the him like looking up from the phone twice. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a moment where he, it might be this. It's, it no, it's the making the cutlets and yeah. it, it cuts to him, like checking the door, like checking the time. And then it just cuts to him doing it again. And it's yeah. like, it doesn't really make sense in the time or the space, but it works. Um, and one of the other cuts that she does that I absolutely love is when Karen gets back from visiting Jimmy and it cuts from her. She pulls in, she like squeals into the driveway and then it just cuts to his pistol slamming the glass of the front door. Mm -hmm. And it's a super jarring cut. Yeah. And and then you like, you completely lose, like, you don't know where you are for a second. You can, you lose all sense of space and then it like zooms out and you see his face and you realize what's going on. But like that cut in itself is so wild. And I don't think, a lot of editors would go with that because it does it does throw you out of it for a second but it works with the pacing completely
0: yeah and they talk about in the made men glenn Kane's book they actually bring up that exact one about the the cigar cigarette like like mm-hmm. and, and people how upset by it and she basically says like continuity is like the least important thing to me mm-hmm. and it's true i remember we, it's like that should be tw- i hate it because i i dislike it be like oh well this didn't there there's a ball in this scene but it's not in the next shot or whatever that part because at the end of the day you're, you're trying to say what feels the best mm-hmm. what what makes the the movie cook basically um and you go oh god but he, he has a cigar in his mouth here we got this is a better performance we have cigar let's cut it out because we got to show this we got to show that he doesn't have a cigar that would be dumb to do as an editor but some i think aspire younger editors or some younger filmmakers think you have to cut on Mm. that and that's not really it's more about feel that's the whole thing it's about the emotion of it so you're talking about the ending with the with the kind of jump cuts or whatever but that kind of makes sense for this the sequence of it's so kind of supposed to be kind of disjointed and Mm. off kiltered that all makes sense
1: and it's so just the the sequence in itself is so disorienting because it's like we we jump't we make this huge jump in time and then we're just in it. like there's not really like, you know it's we've got Henry being like, yeah, I think I might get into like Coke a little bit like you know, I'm like <laughs> I might I might start dealing in the Coke just to keep the money up but like Karen's not even like in on it at that point and then it's like cut and it's like Karen's hooked on Coke. Like, all these people are involved in this, in this, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, in this yeah, ring. His, his now. old
2: girlfriend's and, friend is yeah, the one cutting the coke. Debbie Mazer is,
1: is <laughs> yeah. cutting it for him now. Um, <clears throat> oh, god, it's just, it's so in the, in the rhythm yeah. of it is, is, Th- yeah, there, there's, there's a scene
0: where when it cuts to Karen, I go, oh, she's on coke. Like, nice. <laughs> it's never said, but like, it's just her eyes are so, they're droopy. Like, you can tell she, like, almost like, feel like she hasn't slept at all. I go, oh, she's like, she's on it um no i'll I'll talk about that scene about the cuts about the music going when he snorts the cocaine and muddy water starts playing Mm -hmm. incredible just like it's it's just it's amazing it's amazing just the way it's done is incredible um let's yeah and then talk about the the karen well karen's karen goes into the deal with the pittsburgh guys Mm -hmm. like with like not even questioning it just like yeah she like they know her everything um and off that like the vertigo. after all that after gets caught and they're wondering if he's going to talk the vertigo shot in the diner mm-hmm. where his whole world that's the realization like i have to get out of this world
1: yeah I'm because
0: dead. i'm dead if i don't get out i'm dead and it's 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 one of the best shots of the vertigo shot of the dolly zoom because it's a slow one and if you're really not paying attention to the actual technical side of it you'll just feel something's off mm-hmm. but you won't realize what's off and it's the background everything's pushing in on him basically and it's a great moment it's a great and i love again de niro puts on his glasses that look he's like frank from the irishman the mm-hmm. thick coke bottle glasses <laughs> um but no it's a great scene and then and then of course it's it's the uh the courtroom scene we've got the entire movie everyone uh <laughs> where where well, we where didn't talk we, about uh, spider we know about spider which is also great which is also good with pesci <laughs> well he's just like i got a good shot i'm sorry like when he talks about that um but li- when leota breaks the fourth wall again talk about uh scorsese breaking the rules so he knows them leo just like jumping like that's again star making role mm. jumping out of the court the, the the court box and just talking to camera and then showing him what his protection agency like it's just it's a one it's a great kind of scene for this character where like He's he 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 gets off, but he still hates that he almost got off because he has to live in this like depressed world. Essentially, yeah. I mean,
2: essentially, that is a prison for him. Yeah. You know, the, the ending. Yes. The, the suburbia mm-hmm. is his prison.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and one more, since we didn't cover the whole movie yet, <laughs> one more I do <laughs> want to go back. So a, a performance that I think, I mean, there's so many good performances in this one, but a performance I think goes a little unsung in this movie is Paul Sorvino, and the, oh like, yes, yes, the like you know now I got to turn my back on you like scene is is so good because i i think you know it, it is and you don't want to fall into you know this whole movie is about don't romanticize this life but there is something in paulie that like he might be the only person in that life that like cared about henry in any way you know right and, yeah. and i think that scene and the scene when he like when he's telling him not to get into drugs is yeah so good it's like you know there 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 is some sort of world where henry could have stayed in this and like i think henry was always going to self-destruct himself in some way but like paulie was trying to find a world in which henry could live this life kind of tangentially without being made and and still get by
0: because it's again it's it's almost like again uh uh nicholson with damon and and departed it's like Mm -hmm. he's watched this kid grow up he wants to see him do well. It's Pacino and Godfather. It's like, you're the one, like, well, he's, it's different that Pacino doesn't get involved. You don't want him to involved in the family, mafia, or the family business. But it's like, here, it's like, I want you to be in this business, but I want you to succeed without, like, being dumb, basically.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um but yeah, Sorvino's great. Again, it's like, and he's always, like, he's always away from the action. It's him cooking in the kitchen. I again, I love the jail stuff when they're cooking and they're they're having <laughs> their the meal garlic. together. It's it's yeah, razor blades. That's put, the don't key. put too razor many onions bl- in the sauce. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I only
2: put
3: four onions.
0: <laughs> uh, any other scenes y'all want to bring up before I move on? I mean, I would like to touch on the spider again because of the sopranos, uh, <laughs> the
2: soprano's connection. But no, I uh, I I love that sequence. And he's like the one guy that sticks up to Tommy, and uh, you know. And they're all, like, and uh, De Niro's like goading him, and then of course uh, he, he ends up shooting him. But I think that also is part of that chain of events that leads to Pesci being, you uh, know, whacked. Uh, yeah, you know, if if it hadn't have been them, it would have been somebody else. You know?
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, cause it shows that like he's he, he he can't be he can't be fixed.
1: Yeah, people people recognize he's a liability. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: exactly. You know, I mean, early on when
2: the uh, the guy that he you know he's uh, trying to get the bill from him. He goes to Polly and he's like, what, what do you want me to do? I talked to him. I, I don't know what, what do you want me to do. I, he's a loose even, cannon. Even,
0: even in he's like, well,
1: <laughs> yeah. I apologize. Yeah, I ahead. apologize. <laughs> I shouldn't have said
0: that. <laughs> um, but yeah, anything else for you, Thomas? I think,
1: I think we covered it.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a 300th episode. It's going to be long. That's, that's the key. Um, but yeah, it's it's going to be, be as long, long as Goodfellas. It's going to be as long. It, it won't be as long as Goodfellas.
1: <laughs> we really got to pick up. We got to pick just up the energy around the awards yeah, portion. If yeah. That's yeah, okay. Just chop
0: up the awards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. On set life. So many people talk about how Scorsese encourages improv on his movies, but I think a lot of people misunderstand kind of what he means by improv. I'm not saying this on every movie, but in this one, particularly, the improv sessions happen before production begins like for the funny how scene is that that came from pesci as i said telling scorsese the story and then later pesci and leota working on the scene together with scorsese and scorsese would record them doing it and they'd take that back for a to write it into the the movie basically mm-hmm. and that would happen a lot they would do, they would do the improv scenes and they write it back in the script um each actor on the film had different approaches to preparing and working for their roles so for De Niro preparing for the role meant getting the physicality of Jimmy Conway down. He believes the character lives in that kind of physicality, he believes in gestures. So in the script, De Niro would have notes like look uh, long look here, pause here, put arm around him here, emphasize these specific words. One of the examples they use in the Made Men book is is the never rat on your friends and always keep your mouth sh- keep your fucking mouth shut is that he stresses the never and always and how he puts that in the script um and during this during the shooting and the prep of it De Niro would call up Henry Hill and Pelleggi to talk with them about the role and the qualities of Jimmy Conway uh whose real name was Jimmy Burke uh De Niro also reached out to Burke's daughter for information but soon she would try to get money from the production a hundred thousand a hundred thousand dollars to be exact uh in order to use the burke family name which then meant that de niro couldn't call her anymore and the production changed all the names of the main characters outside of henry hill so they all have different last names basically uh pesci said when prepping for his role he would read as much as he could but he would then kind of toss everything out because (laughs) the real tommy devito had a very had a different physicality than Pesci. For one, he was much taller, but he also he wanted to play a character that he knew that he grew up around. He wanted to play those guys that he knew. He also said that he drew on his real life temper. He said like I've always had a temper. I got it from my father. In my older age, I've tried to be calm and and not not get mad mad a lot. He's like, but I basically have Tommy play those urges out. Those like. Oh, I could kill you that I might feel about someone that would never do. I let Tommy play that out, basically. And for the rehearsal period about those kind of improv sessions, Scorsese didn't like doing big rehearsals. So he would rehearse the actors one-on-one or in small groups. He also spent several days uh, in prep mapping out the entire visual story of the film. They say usually during prep at some point in the eight weeks leading up to the, the production, Scorsese will disappear for a few days... And he'll isolate himself in a room somewhere to kind of create the entire visuals of the movie. Usually picking out references from other movies that he wants to use for this film. His big reference for Goodfellas was the opening of Francois Truffaut's Jules and Jim, and oh. he said he wanted he wanted to take those three opening like kind of fast paced minutes and put that throughout the entirety of Goodfellas with like narration, with freeze frames, with fast cuts. He said take those three minutes and put it out through two and a half hours. Hmm. Production would, would take 68 days. Going over the initial, like, I think 55 days that were scheduled, <laughs> Scorsese in there and the assistant director Joseph Reedy talked about how, like, it needs to be 68. This is what we pra- planned for in studios. Like, no, it needs to be 55. And it ended up being 68 <laughs> once they finished shooting. Um, a big reason why, even they moved, they actually still moved fast because they had so many different locations. I think Scorsese said, like, it's sometimes harder to shoot a half page. Than like four pages of dialogue because with the half page, you're having to do all the setup you do on a four page, but then just gets like 30 seconds of screen time or whatever. Mm. Like, it actually, it takes long. It's actually harder on you because you're having to move more. But they're able to move fast because of Michael Ballhouse. Um, uh, Joseph Reed stated that Michael was very good at interpreting Marty's ideas, improving on them sometimes uh, in the shots, how the shots would be composed and how they would move. Ballhouse, however, would not be able to finish the movie because he was contracted to go shoot Frank Oz's movie, What About Bob? Oh. So when the movie went over on on days, he had to leave. And for the last two weeks, Barry Sonnenfeld actually oh. shot the rest of the movie. Oh, wow. Who had I shot Bloods Blood Simple and later would direct Adam's Family and Men in Black after this, but he had shot when Harry met Sally, I think the year before, there's an Or Ephron connection right there. Mm. Um he would shoot this and apparently they don't exactly know what stuff he did shoot i think there's reports that he shot a good portion of the teenage years of henry hill Hmm. versus the rest of the movie Hmm. um pesci talked about how i talked about the temper idea i was saying earlier um he he doesn't judge his character but it was hard to uh hard to to justify the reason for killing spider when spider talks back to him um, and he had to basically force himself to feel the way Tommy did, I guess letting those killer urges out. Uh Lorraine Bracco found the shoot to be an emotionally difficult one because it was such a male dominated cast, and she realized that if she had not make her work important, it would probably end up on the cutting room floor. Oh, wow. Um
2: Wait, did now she not know I'm... she was gonna have that voiceover though? Probably <laughs> mean... not. Probably oh, wow. not.
0: I don't I don't know but I, you can still cut that like that's the yeah thing. That's yeah the, it's, it's a, even even but I just like,
2: feel like i mean i guess i'm trying to picture the movie like without without, without that and so yeah, yeah it's, it's hard and anyways
0: well you have to think sometimes it's like an example just re- with now with uh at sundance uh was the the, the steven soderbergh like presence movie or yeah. whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. that lucy, lucy Liu was like i didn't know that was gonna how the movie was gonna be because sometimes as an actor you don't know you're not right, seeing right. what the director seeing so maybe she's like maybe, maybe it's like they'll cut it who knows um now on set when it came to extras they used a lot of new york actors of course they also used a lot of real life mobsters on set uh they said they had to keep had had to keep a close eye on them because they were actual criminals but also (laughs) because because they also didn't know how a film set worked uh for the aftermath of the heist scene uh de niro wanted to use actual money to give out to people so the prop master had to take out two thousand dollars of his own money uh, for the scene, and they were kind of afraid that real life mobsters would take the money, thinking it was okay to do because it was prop money They thought it was prop money. Um, casting director Ellen Lewis was actually casting her first solo project here. She mostly done like co-casting directors. This is her first like solo one. Uh she got most of the mobsters. She also had a hard time finding the, the young teen uh Henry Hill. Uh it took them a while before finding Christopher Sarone. And Sarone said to prep for the role he read Wise Guys and also spent time and his father's old neighborhood where a lot of gangsters hung out at. But also, Cerrone said that he he used to go to John Gotti's 4th of July party a lot. <laughs> so he had an idea of what they were like. Um, For the quick shot of them going to Tampa, the Tampa Zoo, uh, they were, I think, initially were supposed to go to Tampa. But because they added the funny Hal sequence scene, that took the money away that would have gone to the Tampa scene. So they actually had to shoot it in Queens and like they put up palm trees and stuff (laughs) and put a sign up and then shot it at the zoo in Queens. (laughs) For the Copacabana scene, Scorsese was forced to go to the kitchen because they weren't getting permission to go to the front of the building. The one issue when they decided to go to the kitchen, however, was that they couldn't figure out why the characters would do it. Uh, Also, uh, which I read this in Glenn Kenny's book, is that when you walked in that way, the entrance to the stage was actually right when you walked in. So it would just been like a walk in the door, take a left, and you're there. And you're already in the kind of stage area. But they thought that was too short. So they basically had them walk in a circle where they walk through the kitchen, hang, turn mm-hmm. around, essentially, and walk back to exactly where they came in. They,
1: I've always <laughs> noticed they go through the whole kitchen when they did not need to. Know, yeah, Maybe Henry just wanted to wave to everybody. You yeah. know?
0: So they had to camouflage where the actual entrance was. And when they walked through, walked past it, they moved everything out of the way. And rechange the kind of the setup right there, so like they're walking through a different part of the kitchen, basically. Near the end of production, Scorsese was beginning to get stressed about the the production. It was <laughs> running over on days, and the studio was wanting him to finish. He was also due to film a part in Akira Kurosawa's Dreams, and Kurosawa oh, yeah. was he was wait he was wait, yeah he was waiting for him. They had finished everything but Scorsese's part, and he was still shooting. Goodfellas, <laughs> and score. And score says he started to develop heart palpitations, so he went to his doctor, and they, he said, "Hey, you gotta stop drinking coffee." So for the last two weeks of production of Goodfellas, he wasn't drinking any coffee for it. Um, assistant assistant director Joseph Reedy said that he had a fantastic time on set, and kind of describing the days on set, he goes, "Every day was special in some way, either with acting, or we're, or we're doing something interesting, sh- or we're doing some interesting shots." Or we did did great things with extras. I thought this would be pretty great. He also mentioned how he felt this story was Scorsese's way of telling his childhood. Scorsese suffered a lot from asthma as a young age. So he couldn't actually live the life of a young kid who wanted to be a gangster. So he had to watch from his window a lot of times as the real life gangsters live in his neighborhood. That's why I think it's a big shot of when you first introduce Henry Hill as a young kid. He's looking through the window down at everyone so in a weird way it plays like a fantasy of what scorsese's life could have been like if he could have gone down and interacted more with those people and that leads us to aftermath so i said earlier that scorsese loved picking the music for the script uh, the prep phase which is what he did they said he he gave a list of songs at one point early on in the prep stage and 90 90 of those songs were in the final movie um he said when he did color of money that was when he first when he brought in robbie robertson where he was like hey what if we just pick songs first and design sequences around those movie movies so that that or around those songs so that way when it came to editing it was just you can just basically drop them right into it and they were kind of directed for those songs in general after editing the film warner brothers wanted to have test screenings for it which is the first time scorsese had ever done test screenings for his films they would test them in redondo beach and encino and their scores were basically disastrous everyone hated it Uh,
3: specifically
0: (laughs) they all they all hated the third act of the movie what (laughs) because they were upset that he like got away with it and they thought they were just they thought it was horrible that that would happen to this guy um it also didn't help on one of the test screenings the projector broke and the music got out of sync and so basically the the, the crowd became very hostile and all of the because if you go to a test screening a lot of times they have producers and directors like actually in the theater with the audience they're just kind of off to the side somewhere and they said so got so bad they had to run over to like a bowling alley next door <laughs> to get away from the audience and when they came back and started the movie over or started the movie back someone yelled get scorsese (laughs) basically threatening to kill him uh because they hated the movie so much uh barbara the producer uh bardafina said that she read the cards for the movie afterwards and it was like 300 cards of just people disgusted like rambling on about how horrible it was so initially so basically initially after all this with these two screenings warner brothers like hey we have to re-edit this movie. We have to reshoot it. Like we can't release it like this. And Scorsese's like, I'm not doing that. And once they test it with a more Scorsese fan-driven audience, it did better. And one of like, okay, maybe this is like a better film to do. Uh one film that was actually very happy about the test scores, apparently, was Bonfire of the Vanities. <laughs> bonfire of the vanities so that one of the same exact time and that was gonna be the big release for Warner brothers that year and Warner brothers had not had a lot of hits that year at that point in time and so bonfire was like well at least we're not as bad as goodfellas is what, what we were, were saying and then goodfellas came out and they're like oh shit but around this time this is kind of the key moment i want to bring up here around this time as goodfellas is about to come out of course he talks about how he was at a screening for lawrence of arabia uh, a, a new re-release somewhere and he ran to Roger Ebert and Gene Siskel and they both said hey best movie of the year and our best movie of the decade and he's like what do you mean he go oh raging bull like these magazines just listed as the best movie of the decade and mm-hmm. he was like really go, oh also like king of comedy was also on one of the lists too and he's like oh and he's like that's when i realized like i was being reassessed all of a sudden so you have so you have to imagine Raging Bulls being considered now one of the best decades when it wasn't when it came out. King of Comedy is getting a reappraisal. And Goodfellas comes out. All three of those things happen kind of all at once. Wow. And I think that's where you get the Martin Scorsese we know today. Mm-hmm. So that comes out. Goodfellas comes out on in September at Venice and, and does well. It ends up coming out in the U.S. September 19th, 1990. It makes... Around fifty million dollars at the box office, Ebert calls it the best mob movie ever made. Gene Siskel praised it, saying all the performances are first rate, first rate, with Pesci standing out. Uh, Vincent Canby says it's one of Scorsese's best. Uh, can you guess who the most negative reviewer was? This movie, Pauline Kale. She was the second. She gave him a, a more <laughs> mixed, a more mixed review. Hold on, let me get the actual quote from the book. She was like yeah i like it i kind of don't know why i like it <laughs> she's like she's like it's good but it's not great um let me see but it's andrew saris
1: uh okay that checks out
0: and what he said was um let's see yeah for the first time in his career martin Scorsese says he has fashioned a film utterly devoid of guilt shame redemption and even low-grade romance uh after all where does the plot of goodfellas go after more than two hours nowhere except a hastily devised rat-like escape into the witness protection agency without the slightest trace of regeneration or dawning self-knowledge then later he says i must confess that i have missed the boat on some of martin scorsese's previous hits most nobly, i <laughs> most notably with my thoughtful pans of mean streets taxi driver and raging bull and i was like <laughs> his three other best movies <laughs> Uh, yeah, Pauline Scale goes, is it a great movie? I don't think so, but it's a triumphant piece of fil- filmmaking. So yeah, and some, some people say like, what's great about it is that it takes a, a, a usual plot we all know and adds something new to it. Yeah, Sarah said, uh, basically said it was wildly overrated and said that movie gangsters should be larger than life, not these small-time people like in the movie. But...
1: That, see that just like he <laughs> he opens with being like oh well, there's not enough like morality in this like there's not much enough judgment on these guys at the end like but yeah. that that is that is the judgment at the end is that they're pitiful like that yeah. is what it comes away with is like these guys think they're larger than life but they're not they're they're two-bit criminals yep come on andrew
0: yeah so the movie would be nominated for six oscars with joe pesci being the only one to win for best supporting actor he has one of the shortest speeches of anyone i think he says thank you it's been a privilege and then walked off stage <laughs> the people who won that year best P- i'll give you the, i'll give you the people who are nominated for best picture and and the other awards best picture nominees goodfellas the godfather part three <laughs> ghost awakenings dances with wolves and Dances with Wolves would win. Yes. And Costa would also win for Best Director, beating out Scorsese for the role. Uh, they said it's actually kind of weird or kind of mirror images of what happened in 1980 with Raging Bull, because Raging Bull was beat by uh, Ordinary People, directed by Robert mm. Redford. Mm. So in the both like directorial actor movies, Costa and Redford, Scorsese got beat. Um, Pesci would beat out yeah, Al Pacino for Dick Tracy. Uh uh Graham grain for Dance of the Wolves, Andy Garcia Godfire Part Three, and Bruce Davison from Long for a long time companion. It would not win best editing either. What? That would go to Dance of the Wolves. Oh my god. Dance of the Wolves basically won everything. One cinematography editing, sound, original score.
1: Yeah. Uh, big da- I feel big like dance. kinda kinda like you know, when you're when when the, the first time you're like, oh, you know, like Shakespeare in Love, that's not that bad of a movie. Like it's it's okay. And then it's you're good. like, wait it's it a minute, what? Oh yeah,
0: no, I hate that movie. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah, it's 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 or even like even King's Speech. King's Speech is not a bad movie. It's a good movie, but it's not Social Network. It's like it's kind of the it's kind of the idea of like a good movie that beats the movie that defined a generation in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what kind of happens here. And then now, but Goodfellas, time has kind of helped it out more. It's now considered one of the greatest films of the decade, also one of the greatest films of all time. Possibly, Scorsese's best film, even if he's kind of remade it in several different ways later on. Oh, I th- I, th- I think
1: it is. Um,
0: yeah, go ahead.
1: Take that. I, I Take do. That I-, I think part of the reason why people struggled with this, why critics struggled with this one, is like this. This is, and and he's gotten more into it now. But like you know, for a long time, Scorsese was making like art films and he was making pop films, and they didn't always like. Some were very clearly one and the others were very clearly the other. And and this is like this yeah. is, I think, the ultimate like pop art film like this is yeah. a a movie that is this well crafted shouldn't be this fun to watch. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what a lot of that's kind of it kind of sounds like what Pauline Kale is saying, like, yeah, this this shouldn't be this fun it could be is. a masterpiece you know yeah. like yeah. It, it it reminds me those those guys the, the guys that twitter loves to hate the podcast guys oh the, the hack guy the hack guy? Hat guy another hat guy, guy yeah. Yeah. there was a conversation <laughs> a while back where they were like oh like my favorite movies are like all marvel movies and everybody was like your favorite movies can't be all marvel movies and they're like well there's a difference between like best movies and favorite movies and they like published a list of like favorite movies versus best movies and it was very clearly this like like these are like homework movies, these are vegetable yeah. movies. It was yeah. you know, Citizen Kane and 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 they had Goodfellas on that list. And it was just like everybody was like, Can you imagine thinking that Goodfellas <laughs> isn't like an absolute blast to watch? Like thinking it's <laughs> some sort of like uh, you know, like intellectual art piece that you have to like like you know, stand back from and just kind of view from a distance. It's like, no, yeah. that movie is like so much fun. Yeah it is completely entertaining. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and that, and that, I guess I'll ask, we'll, we'll go with David on this one first. It's like, does it, does this glamorize the lifestyle? Um, I mean,
2: I, I don't think a movie being entertaining means it glamorizes it. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I think again, you can watch a movie, remove yourself from the character. it be like, okay, they're having fun. But the you look at the life that he led and all of them led. Cause most of them were killed. Um, yeah. you're like, no, no, I don't want, I don't want any part of that. And so it's like, no, I don't think it glamorizes it. I think it makes an entertaining story out of, you know, a, a crime narrative. But like yeah. we talked about, I mean, that's been around since sound movies were first. I mean, even silent movies had had, had criminal stories and stuff. So mm-hmm. I don't know. I th- I don't think it glamorizes it. I, I think I I think that's somebody as an audience member putting that on, on it itself. You know.
0: Well, I think it's that. This is again. This happened with *Killers of the Fire and Moon* and *Wolf of Wall Street*, where it's like. They watch, people watch the movie and go, oh my God, it's glamorized it. But they kind of like just ignore the ending Yeah, of when they're like, they all end like, like spoiler alert, a little bit on Killer Star Movement. It's like, they talk about, it's a, it's kind of like the, the ending title basically of just like, oh, DiCaprio's character, like lives in a trailer park for the rest of his life, like, or in his old age and poor. And you're like, yeah, he really glamorized that character. Like, no, it's just like, it, Take the ending. The ending of the movie is what makes that's the final statement on the character, mm. not what's happening in the middle of the movie. That's showing you what happened to this character that made them be this way. That's not saying it's praise. Like there's a and the, everyone has like who if they lead that life, what he's kind of saying is that Yeah, one day you're gonna have to pay the Piper on it all. Right. One day one day you're gonna meet the end of all this. It's not gonna be this the highs are not gonna be this high the entirety of your of your life i mean and,
2: reiner says that in wolf of wall street the chickens are gonna come uh, yeah, literally, yeah.
0: <laughs> and i feel like people just always like people m- like misunderstand that what Scorsese says that that's what he's always saying is that it's gonna come back and bite you at some point you might have some sort of different li- like belfort has a very different life now like it's that's a little bit different but like it it, at the end of the day, like you're you're gonna have to deal with the con- your consequences. There are gonna be consequences to your actions. So, with all that, I also think, we're, that, oh, I ahead, also think we're
2: seeing it through his eyes. So of course it's gonna look or like play as fun because it's his opinion on it. If that makes it's sense.
0: His, yeah, it's yeah. It's it's they're they're the most time they're the narrators, right? Right. right. With, with Wall Street and with Goodfellas, they're gonna talk about how amazing it was because yeah. when they're talking about it in the in the narration. They don't have it in that moment, and they want to—they want to have that moment back without the consequences of what they did.
2: Oh, dude! i, I mean, I tried to read the Wolf of Wall Street book, and I just—I couldn't get through it. That guy's just so up his own ass. But yeah. I think seeing DiCaprio play it—I mean, the, you're, and, and Scorsese—you know—thematically dealing with things, it's like, yeah, no, no, he's not presenting him as. Oh yeah. The guy I think, who presents I think Wolf himself. Wolf of Wall yeah.
1: Street, even more so than Goodfellas, is there's always this. Like, these guys are losers. Like, right, right. like, the whole time, it's just, like, these guys are so lame. They just have a bunch of money. And, like, yeah, that's cool to have a bunch of money. But, like, look how, like, gaudy and, like, terrible all these people
0: are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do you want that life, really? Um...
1: <laughs> but, yeah, I think, I think you know, having having watched all these in, like, a class and, and with that specific mindset, I think, of course, I'm, I'm going to make some people mad here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think Scorsese has a better grasp on like this should not be romanticized like yes it looks fun but like this is the real truth of it than Coppola does. I think there's still in in Godfather I think there's still some like this is about family, this is about the old country that like Scorsese comes in and is like no, it's it's all bullshit like uh Yeah. I'm not I'm not saying that Goodfellas is better than Godfather, but I think if you're talking about like who has a better kind of Mindset of like, especially when you compare it to the way they talk about the mafia in Italy, it was like these guys are just all street punks, and like some of them might have gotten a little bit of money, but it, when it comes back to it, they're all street punks at the end. And, and there is like a little bit more of that romanticism to Coppola, I think, than there is, uh, interesting in, specifically Goodfellas.
0: That's an interesting take. I mean i know in the book either either glenn kenny or paleggi or, or mains which has talk about how like the mo- the rules at least in the way goodfellas shows like the rules are kind of all bullshit where it's like mm-hmm. oh you have to be full-blood italian to be an actual made man like the the rules don't matter until you need to use them is kind of in like in the mafia's eyes is what, or at least what he's trying to portray in these movies um that's an interesting take david any thoughts on that take <laughs> before we move on
2: I mean, I, yeah, no, I, I think it's interesting. And I think to kind of build off that point, uh, to me, this doesn't feel as, like, historical as The Godfather does in the sense of, of like, values coming over from the, you know, the other country. Because, you know, Vito was a, a, a uh, you know, he was a, uh, uh, he, he came over uh, and, uh, you know, came into the country. So, I, I don't know. I I, uh, I, think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting comparison. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and something worth discussing.
0: Yeah. Uh, but now in this episode, cause we're already too long. Um, so so <laughs> well, that we, was... can,
2: we can reach the Godfather part two links. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so what worked about Goodfellas, everyone? Um,
1: the, the edit. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, when you're talking all tour theory, you're always talking people who, you know, directors who find collaborators that match their style or that that the yeah. push them in the right direction. And I think, I think, uh, there's there's so many great collaborations between scorsese and, and screen Maker, but i think this is the absolute best between of of the two of them playing off of each other this is the best like mm-hmm. and then in the last couple of years i think she's let him go a little bit longer than uh <laughs> than maybe he he should but um this is just like a, a pitch perfect cut like everything mm-hmm. it everything is deliberate sometimes it's sometimes it's not noticeable sometimes it's flashy when it needs to be but it keeps the pace and um yeah like i said it, it's 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 a, a rare movie where you're like anytime you're like all right i could i could pause this and walk away you just you can't like not, the yeah, next yeah. scene kicks in and you're like oh I, I gotta watch this scene oh i gotta watch this scene and then you get to the third act and the ball's rolling and you just can't look away yeah
0: david
2: i I mean what, what what can we say that we haven't already said? Yeah, it's just uh, like on a craft level, it's it's uh, amazing. It's an entertaining mm-hmm. story, and I think there is a larger point about you know uh, trying to trying to get riches this way is going to lead you astray, or, or or like like you said before, like it's going to come crumbling down. Like there's no way you stay at the top in
0: this kind of world. No. So, uh, yeah, I think I think there's it's a fascinating always, movie. Yeah, there's always going to be a low point. There's,
1: there's there's a you know it's it's so funny we've talked about this before with with spielberg and and you know you, when you start to realize these guys life stories you see how personal even even a movie that is not about them in any way can become kind of personal and there yeah there's definitely a, a cocaine ruins everything <laughs> <laughs> the through line in here that you you know is very personal to, to scorsese yeah
0: yeah <laughs> but uh one thing i remember is performances in this movie i mean We've talked about De Niro. De Niro is amazing and Pesci and kind of how it plays their strengths. Leota is a star make. Like it's, it's pretty much a star making performance. And like you almost, like it's sad we didn't see like more of that. If that, like if that makes mm-hmm. sense, like he, he, had, he had, a success, Liotta had a successful career, but he's just so good in this. You wish you got to see more of that. Like, could he have been like Scorsese's early DiCaprio? Like mm. you have De Niro and then you have DiCaprio. Like is Kid Liotta been like one, right in the middle there and something. I don't know. Um, and Paul, Paul Silvino, of course. But when we didn't, we, when we talked that much about was Lorraine Bracco as Karen. I think mm-hmm. she's fantastic. We talked about the scene when they first meet and everything, but she's fantastic throughout the entire movie. And I oh, know yeah. a lot, a lot of people talk about how like the treatment of women in Scorsese movies. And I think it's all fair points. I think Bracco performance she talks about how like she always viewed her character as like an abused wife wife, mm-hmm. and that's how she wanted to play it was that it's the idea of like oh but I, I love him no matter what he does type thing is that she keeps coming back to him and she's trying to kind of make sense of all that is that it's like you're going back to that original moment when they first meet and yeah. how that electricity they have she's always going back to that moment even when he's not and that's why she keeps kind of staying there but yeah, the scene when she comes to the 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 jail with the food she smuggles in, mm-hmm. and like is like have her bring all your stuff. If you're gonna have, keep seeing her, like I can't stop her from seeing me. She wants to see me. But yeah, I think she's great all, overall. The the smaller roles, the big roles. It's all it's a fantastic cast overall. Um, does anything not work about Goodfellas? <laughs> Who wants to go? Oh man. I don't have, I th- I think this is a movie that's this this one is going to be a big like up for interpretation with people is that do you think it glorifies the lifestyle and that's what you don't like about it do you don't you don't like how Karen's portrayed in terms of women in Scorsese films there's that because I've heard people talk about that I think it's going to be kind of up to you the listener of what you think doesn't work here I don't yeah. nothing pops out to me in terms of structure in, ter- in terms of writing I think i think it's clear what he's trying to say uh mm-hmm. and the performances are clear so that's my my view of it yeah david anything on? i agree okay all right film facts the opening titles for the movie were done by saul and elaine bass at the time saul bass had done psycho and North northwest a lot of hitchcock movies um Scorsese thought Saul Bass had either retired or died at this point in time <laughs> and he found out th- that Saul and Elaine were still alive after he watched Penny Marshall's Big and he saw their names <laughs> in the credits and he goes, "Oh my god, they're alive." Um and he he, con- he contacted them. Uh Pileggi said, "You write a book that's 400 pages, then you boil it down to 100 to 150 pages for a script." And then Saul Bass boils it down the meaning or boils down the meaning of the story to four minutes. So he basically captures everything you wrote for 400 pages into just four minutes of the opening credits. <laughs> um, I'm gonna get this name wrong probably, but Tony, uh, so don't come at me in the reviews. <laughs> Tony, uh, Valanga played Frankie in the bamboo, uh, the, the, the bamboo lounge scene. Uh, he's one of the guys at the bar. I think Tony also named Tony, the lip was actually the real guy that vigo mortensen plays in green book mm. oh former uh, prose- uh new york prosecutor edward a mcdonald appeared in the film as himself recreating the conversation he had with henry hill and karen hill about joining the witness protection program oh that guy's not an actor he's not an actor that's, the real, du- that's the real that dude that's the real dude
1: yeah i love him in that scene i love him he's like, frankly i don't care if you come
0: <laughs> <laughs> so apparently they, they, they i don't actually, go anywhere cold now that scene, I think I think that scene was like an ad lib scene that they just had like a few things written on the page, and then he just like ad libbed everything. <laughs> um, basically, McDonald was like on set when they were like doing location scouting. Uh, they're taking pictures of his office. He goes, "Hey, if you need someone to play play my character, I'll do it." And then an hour later, they're coming. Hey, are you serious? Would you do that? And so yeah, he improvised the line that Karen wasn't. He, you're not a babe in the woods here, Karen. Mm. like you can't tell me you didn't know this oh yeah the ending one of the last shots of joe pesci the great train robbery scene mm-hmm. he recreates the great great train robbery shot basically saying that no matter where henry goes someone's always trying to kill him no matter where he looks someone's always trying to kill him that's kind of what that shot means uh the last thing i'll say uh right before goodfellas was released another mob movie was released and that was my blue heaven mm-hmm thomas was my blue heaven about
1: my blue heaven is a comedic adaptation of the second half of henry hill's life when he is <laughs> in uh witness protection
0: and it's played by steve martin as as the, the as basically the henry hill surrogate and rick Moranis is a neighbor that meets him and it becomes this kind of just comedy mob comedy and, and because efron was married to palegi she also became friends with henry hill and she would interview henry hill about stuff and about the mobsters that she met as well because palegi was very in with all these mobsters as as ryan wise guy efron went with him to a lot of these events and they just loved her so they would tell her all this stuff and she would use it for my blue heaven so there you go and then finally let's move to awards so the beatrice Strait award actor Action, on the scenes that kills it who's 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 limited here who who are we talking about billy bats billy frank vincent i would consider limited here yes
1: uh scorsese's I, mom
0: i would consider scorsese's mom limited i would consider uh edward mcdonald as the witness protection guy limited um
1: the the whoever plays the babysitter can't fly without my lucky hat
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah that's great I, I i would consider basically anyone that's not paul sorvino pesci uh de niro brocco or Leota, i think are all beatrice straight here
1: you know, you know who who we didn't shout out that we we usually give a shout out anytime he pops up, the king of indie New York film in the '90s, Kevin Corrigan. again.
0: Oh yeah, as the as the as the as the in the sauce brother. Yeah, <laughs> who we go with here, guys? Let's see. Let me get my list. Sam Jackson. Oh, we ain't mentioned Sam Jackson. He's also, <laughs> He's also great. He's also great. He's I I also great. Stacks. I, I, I,
1: I think it's Spider Man.
0: Yeah, Billy Bats is probably takes it let, let, Let's go, Frank Vincent. Get your shine box. <laughs> it's he's great. You don't you don't come say hi to me? You don't yeah, I'm just I've been in the joint for how long? Yeah, Frank Vincent. Also just it's it's it, like it's she's like best like like one of his best friends from childhood, basically. Mm. is playing that part. I, I let's go with Frank Vincent, Billy Bats. It's a key moment throughout the entire movie. It's a great line. All right, Annie Potts X Factor Award, supporting actor, actresses, the most memorable. It's a tough one. So here's the question: Yeah, do you consider De Niro lead or supporting?
1: I mean, I, I think it's. Uh, I, have, I have a hard time saying anyone's lead except for Ray Liotta because he just carries his I, movie I, th- so I, think, I think,
0: oh Yeah, I think it's Liotta's lead. So I think anyone else counts for supporting.
1: But I would say up for this, I would say it's De Niro, Lorraine Bracco, and and um, Pesci. Yeah.
0: Yeah. All right, so those are our three. Those are our three people. David, your thoughts on who?
2: Uh, I would, I would vote Pesci, but uh, Bracco definitely deserves to be in the conversation.
0: As does De Niro, of course. But Yeah, <laughs> my vote's Pesci. Okay, your vote's Pesci. Thomas. Uh, I mean, I think the the
1: more I come back to it, I think it might be Lorraine Bracco, but. <laughs> I have a hard it's gonna time, a, and it's, it's going to it, be a three-way tie
0: because I was picking De Niro. That was wow. a, that. <laughs> It's going to be a three-way tie because I—it depends. Because I, I was—I was just hypnotized by De Niro this time. I'm—I'm I'm fine with a three-way tie. It makes the most sense because I—I I, 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 I think they're all so good, and I—and I really can't pick one or the other here. And they're all um, vital to the story as well. So they, yes. Yes. And they all kind of have their own like arcs as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we've never done this. We've, do, we've done a tie. We've never done a three-way tie. <laughs> <laughs> so a three-way tie of Pesci, Brock and Leo. You're probably like, well, well, Brandon, why do you guys even have a show then? If you guys can't make a decision. I don't know. <laughs> but that You make a decision on this Goodfellas cast. Okay. And the big one, uh, the Gene Hackman MVP award actor director editor writer whoever who carries the movie
1: it's it's it for me it's scorsese i yeah yeah i don't like to i don't like to engage going back to those podcast guys i don't like to engage in like the like best versus favorite uh like argument because i think that you like if something if you think something is best it should be your favorite but i do think there's like there's like per there's so many like your, your personal favorite Scorsese movie can be like, he, you know, he's such a varied filmmaker and like you, your personal favorite Scorsese movie can be so wildly different from person to person. But I think, I think this is his best movie, hands down. Like Mm -hmm. I, it it is just for him. Like I said, he he was experimenting with all these different styles. And I think this is just like the ultimate combination of like pulp and trash and art and like everything that he had explored up to that point all kind of came together in this movie. And, and I mean, I think he's made some incredible stuff since then, but, but I, uh, it, this, I think this was the the culmination of, of everything he had made up until that point and all of his art up to yeah. that point. And I think everything, I think a lot of what he's made afterwards, like I, 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 you can't argue that, that, like I said, Wolf of Wall Street and Irishman and, and, And killers of flower moon are all in conversation with this movie um Mm -hmm. and so i think it has become something that has informed the rest of his career as well so yeah i think this is like this is the pinnacle for him not to say that he's been in like a down like you know i'm I'm not saying he's come down at all since then but i think every everything in his career was either before this was like pointing towards this movie or after this has been kind of looking back on this movie
0: i agree I agree with that, David. Any thoughts on that? No, it's a, yeah, w- well said. Deserves. <laughs> it. Yeah, it's a long episode, so we're we we're, we're going through it real quick. Uh, <laughs> I, I agree. I concur, Doctor. <laughs> Final questions: Who would you cast in my movie? I know this is a difficult task. I don't know if we'll do them all, but uh I think we mentioned before. Show is it like? Oh. Let's be real. We have, we're having issues before this. We're redoing this part. We had issues um, where I pretended to crash my computer but, because uh, I'm
1: morally opposed to recasting this movie.
0: <laughs> okay, but uh, but we'll re say them again. We talked yeah. about De Niro as Polly. uh yeah. We talked about DiCaprio as Jimmy. Um, as you were off resetting your computer, uh, we did instead because we were talking about like Gaga's as, as Karen. But because Karen's actually like she's Jewish, she's not Italian technically. Could it be Zoe Deutsch? Uh, sure, yeah. Here's my pitch. Here's here's my Tommy pitch. This
1: is somebody who's worked with Scorsese before. Okay. Uh, uh, Henry Zebrowski. Uh, (laughs) Wolf of Wall Street.
0: was a wild
1: guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah, Oh, he's sea
2: otter and he's a podcaster. Yeah.
0: Oh, and he used to have a show, la- last podcast on Adult left swim left called guy. "Your Pretty
1: Face Is Going to Hell." Oh,
2: that dude.
0: Okay, so you want to go with for for for, uh, for, t- for
1: Tommy? Guy, go wild card, man.
0: But here's the thing: Do we do Dylan O'Brien as Henry Hill? That was the question that we had.
1: <laughs> Where does Dylan O'Brien stock come from? His... <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't think I saw it in the same movie. <laughs>
2: <laughs> we were talking about the outfit, how he's like. Does oh, this, I haven't seen. I, I haven't like, seen
1: the super, outfit, so maybe that's. Uh, I've heard good things. Oh,
2: he well, he does like a super. Um, I don't know how to exaggerate Italian Italian. I wouldn't say super. Yeah. It's it's somewhat oh, okay. exaggerated Italian yeah. accent, and that's what got us it's, it's get him. I mean, is it in, Jacob Elordi. Everybody's like yeah, all
1: that Jacob Elordi stocks finally coming, <laughs> finally paying dividends. You know.
0: <laughs> okay, you don't want to Dylan O'Brien Do you want to Zoe <laughs> Deutsch as 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 Karen? Sure. <laughs> Oh, that's a train wreck right here <laughs> okay Lynn unknown Powell as, as I, tried
1: to, I tried to help you by crashing my computer but you know you wanted to go back and do this segment again <laughs>
0: okay so henry, henry hill's unknown is that what we're going with henry hill's unknown open casting call open casting yeah. call for henry hill all right does this film fit with any other genres or is this purely a mob? This is a mob movie,
1: man. This is a mob movie out now. Yeah, out. I
0: think, but I think it's mainly a mob movie. Uh, how does this film fit with within the genre of the mob mafia movies? What does it do?
1: Uh, I mean, kind of like I was saying before, I think it modernizes it in a way that completely erodes any romanticism of it. Like, I, I think you can yeah. say... I think you can say that there's a there's a way to view this and 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 have it have the life be like glamorized, but I don't think it's romanticized at all, you know. Yeah. Um, Like I don't think Wolf of Wall Street has any type of romantic view of of you know. It you, you when when they say that oh like all these kids watch Wolf of Wall Street and then they wanted to become stockbrokers, it's like it's not because they came out of Wolf of Wall Street thinking there was anything noble about being a stockbroker you know it's because no. maybe they saw it and thought <laughs> oh i'm also morally uh bankrupt and and could make a living in this in this <laughs> world but um but yeah i think that there is something that feels when you compare it to the the older mafia films there is something that feels kind of modern and cynical in in the way that it uh, approaches it and, and and i don't know maybe even like pragmatic but um but but yeah i think there is a, a more realistic it, it, it's a more realistic view of of that genre and that that type of movie
0: yeah and like I, what i like about it is that it again score talk Scorsese talking about how it, it it's the character it's the story of a foot soldier mm. it's not a story of jimmy cagney or humphrey bogart it's not the main guy like usually what's in their movie it's like you're maybe following pesci or you're following polly you might be following jimmy you're not really following Henry. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, 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 I mean, yeah. So it's like you're following Pacino and Donnie Brasco. It's like seeing how do you become a made guy. You're literally following a guy who can't get really any higher <laughs> in, in the yeah. mob world. That's an interesting idea. But so it plays the character archetypes and character tropes. Um one thing it adds it's like to the culture of it, which I think I think Godfather also does a little bit, it's the idea of like food, weirdly, it's the side thing, but food in the culture mm-hmm. and how it's this kind of camaraderie and, and how it really is a family of some kind it's not just we're working we're, we're doing criminal activities it's like oh no these people we hang out with and like because it's that great scene when it was the like the uh, the home movies mm-hmm. and home the, the the photos of all of them at christmas and birthdays very reminiscent of like the opening of main street with the home video home videos and yeah. everything um that that's kind of playing off of like it's not just a crim like cr- criminal we're showing you the like this is why pal told Scorsese to do is like you're showing the details of the life of a gangster not the crime it's what they do the day-to-day that makes it so fascinating david your thoughts on how does this film fit with the mob mafia genre i think you guys co- covered it right there but yeah i mean i
2: think it yeah obviously there were mob movies before this but i think it definitely re not reinvented the genre maybe reinvigorated the genre in the 90s yeah, yeah. and so yeah, for agree. that alone uh you know there were so many movies that in its wake or tried to copy it
0: <clears throat> i mean there's scenes in this where you go oh tarantino loves this because like there's scenes of like like the conversation in the car with Pesci and Leota when they're outside Bamboo Lounge waiting for the Catch Fire, I was like, this feels like Travolta and Jackson and Pulp Fiction just talking mm-hmm. about whatever. Or when they're talking about like the Sammy Davis Jr. stuff or whatever at one point when they're like, oh, when, yeah, yeah. when Pesci's upset about that's the one thing you could argue about what didn't work. It's, it's kind of the the racial uh, aspects of the movie. Where they're kind of commenting on other people. They talk about this made me and how like Scorsese has gotten better at like aging with the time of like just because they said it doesn't mean you have to say it. In mm-hmm. movies now, you can get you can get the point across in other words. Um, but yeah, there's certain things that you could feel like in the '90s, everyone's kind of copying the the style, the the narration, all that stuff that comes from Goodfellas. Um, but yeah, so real quick, back to our 300th episode, everyone. When I want to tie that back in at the end, uh, a few things. So I looked at some of our stats from this show. Yeah. Who do you think is our most watched director? It's a
1: little bit of a. Outside a of director episodes or within director episodes?
0: Both, both, both. There's kind of a couple answers here. And I'll. And I'll one, one took the lead on most solo episodes this month with four. De Palma? De Palma. De Palma has four movies with Body Double, Fan Paradise, Blowout, and Scarface. Before that, it was a it was a tie for first with three. he had three now. With Goodfellas, uh, with uh Last Waltz after hours, Hitchcock with Vertigo, Psycho, Rear Window, Bogdanovich with Paper Moon, What's Up Doc, and Last Picture Show, and then Billy Wilder with Sunset Boulevard with the prosecution in the apartment. Ooh. Um, overall, in one episode that we did, Linklater had nineteen. I believe, <laughs> when we when we did that episode, <laughs> he has more now. Uh for a female filmmaker uh Bigelow, Catherine Bigelow, we did ten for hers for a month. Um most watched actor.
1: Hmm. I can tell you I can tell At- you my most watched actor of all time on Letterboxd is in this movie.
0: Uh De Niro? Oregon? Kevin, Kevin Court, yeah, it's Sam Jackson.
1: I mean, I, I, I'm i assuming oh, yeah. it's just yeah. every that he's in every Marvel yeah. movie ever made, plus yeah. every Quentin Tarantino movie. But, uh, but yeah, I
0: think and then Star I Wars. Think, uh, yeah,
1: yeah I, I, I pulled up my like all time Letterbox stats, and I think I've got like 45 movies from him locked.
0: It's not Sam Jackson. Granted, this person is because we watched a director that had this person in it because he is the director and it's mel brooks with 11 appearances <laughs> uh, next is madeline Kahn, really with oh, seven wow. with seven be- because of the mel brooks movies because of the Pierre bogdanovich movies and because of clue and then yeah real quickly any favorite series you want to shout out that we've done these past Well, we know it's it's been different iterations of the show but any series or episodes that were your favorites
1: um i, re- I really, I really liked... like doing
0: monster movie month
1: oh yeah, yeah.
0: uh yeah monster movie i month. really
1: liked when we did our uh female director month um we squeezed a lot of movies into that month but but for yeah. for filmmakers that, that we really liked and that were all very different um so that was that was probably yeah. probably not a workload i will ever be able to handle again on this show <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it was a good yeah. month
0: and also and I also think with a lot of those female directors, we talked about Amy Heckerling, Nancy Myers, Karen Kusama, and uh, Deborah Granick. I think all of them, for the most part, have had kind of a resurgence since we talked about them. Yeah,
1: I, I, when, we, when we recorded that episode, I was like, yeah, uh, Karen Kusama's working on like something called like Yellow Jackets that's coming up soon. Yeah. And then I was like, oh man, I Jack- love that show and, now.
0: Every, and then I think Jennifer's body popped more after, because it, it was growing at the time when we did it. But I think it's, it's because Dave and I saw that in theaters recently right Where it, didn't you go with this david or is it you found on me i i didn't go but it well, was the, playing at the newer okay you found it you thought th- you found it. And i went to it together Jennifer's body
1: the trailer for the new diablo cody movie yeah literally just says from the writer of jennifer's body like doesn't even, doesn't juno. even bring up like juno yeah. or anything oh, wow. yeah.
0: that's that's wild but yeah, yeah yeah she's had a little bit of comeback i think nancy Myers a little bit of comeback in terms of culture people looking at her stuff again um yeah i just went on a binge of uh dancing. You, d- you did you did you <laughs> did so so yours is that uh david you said monster movie month we did that may yeah. of this past year yeah, yeah. well, well was that fun. was your fir- that was your first full month doing because that was when thomas was off in, in in europe at that point if i'm not mistaken mm-hmm. <laughs> living Uh-oh. his best life yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. yeah um but but you were we, yeah that was kind of the one that we you did the full month to you and i together um and that was a fun one we did that was a we, we did a, a wide variety predator was the big one for us i know and deservedly so i mean i really loved when we did our southern movie month i know we just we we just re-released to kill mockingbird but that was one that i had been like toying with for a while that i wanted us to do um and it was one that felt like it wasn't like an exact genre that people would usually do and that's why i felt it was kind of an important one for us as a show that i really loved kind of tackling um are there any things that you want to say that you've learned over this time with this show that's a big question i know
1: <laughs> i mean i think just just looking at especially in our director episodes like looking at uh at works from a director as a whole even those that wouldn't necessarily be considered like all tours and just seeing the way that that uh their kind of personal viewpoints or their lives kind of bleed through yeah and then i think uh, another thing i've really taken away from this show in particular uh you know even talking about like michael ballhouse today is is starting to recognize and and it, uh, it's also something i really like about like letterbox year in review is is starting to recognize the uh people outside of you know director yeah. you know, these these other people working on these films that you, and recognizing uh people whose style you really like and starting to explore like i don't know if we hadn't have done this show um i don't know that i would have realized you know that a star is born and uh josie and the pussycats were shot by the same person <laughs> you know? yeah. um and and that I really liked the way that they were both shot. Yeah. So you know it's it's exploring patterns like that. And and when you when you take the time to really look into who's making these movies, and then you can start to realize whose work you really appreciate and explore more of their work. And um, yeah, I think that's that's something I've taken away from all of that. Yeah,
0: David, what about you?
2: Yeah, I think uh, building off what Thomas was talking about, it's interesting how many of like my because I I tend to obviously gravitate towards some of my favorite movies if I'm doing writing the episode. Uh, but how many of them are personal? tales even if they don't necessarily seem that way from the outset you know uh, I think you know a lot of the great movies most of the great movies are personal stories to the director otherwise it, you, you know you would, it would feel somewhat hollow you know you wouldn't feel that emotions
0: yeah on, on, a, on a historical level I think what I've learned what I find just so fascinating is how so many things are connected like there's so many times where we'll like have a movie that like somehow intersects with another movie we talked about I think one we talked about at one point was like how gremlins connected with streets of fire if I'm not mistaken david yeah. it was like yeah, gremlins yeah, yeah. was shooting at the same time as streets of fire and and yeah. and then the, or that streets of fire somehow kind of connects like back to the future or whatever um or how somehow um one of thomas's big movies uh, thank god it's friday has popped up on the show how many times <laughs> um and just, or like the person who does Blade Runner is connected to this movie or that movie, how, the different kind of connections that happen over time, just how small uh, the community actually is. I think on a personal level, I, it's like, I look at, it's helped me more just in an analytical way of how to examine, how to break down movies better. Um, how to also, how it helps with my writing as well. And kind of how, when I discuss people discuss it, like talk about writing to people and like, and help with their stories or whatever, it's like, I can look at how the genre stuff we've discussed of like, okay, well you're doing a genre movie, you need to know, the tropes of this and how can you subvert them? How can you play with them? That's a big key. You can't just go fully off of them and just ignore them. They're there kind of for a reason, but how can you bring your voice and story to it? So yeah. Any other final words I want to say before we leave the third, three hundred episode.
3: Mm-mm.
0: Okay. Well, I just want to thank a few people real quick. Ben Gertz who helped create the show initially with me, back at the end of 2014 mark patterson who gave us the name for the show nathaniel Reed, the early sound design for it, william mason with the original logo you found a us for the updated logo dusty fields the music mark vallon the new art theater along with the landmark theaters for the the late nights we've done sideshow books for the for the kind of screens we did before covid cinephile video all of our past podcasters ben hunter barcroft will clayton anna catley amy Tibbet madrid jonathan norris sean randall and all of our former writers on the original Medium page that we did, Thomas, those people, some of them are like actually like big writers now. They're actually doing assignments for big companies. So that was kind of a fun time during this process, this journey of this, of the Nation podcast. Also our patrons on our Patreon, thank you so much. Be sure to join that. If you, if you hadn't done already, we have stuff coming out. We had two things for January of the Day Trippers and Barfly. Um, and we'll have more stuff coming out this month. Um, and if you're a new listener of Old Listener, if you listen to one episode or 300 episodes, thank you so much for being a part of this journey. It's been a fun time for these first 300 episodes for next week. We're talking about a history of violence, which Thomas picked very different pick for mob movies, but should be a fun discussion. So yeah, stay tuned for that. We've done David Cronenberg. We didn't really talk about history of violence for that much on that episode. So we're going to talk about it now for this month. So it's going to be fun, but yeah, and that's all we have for you on this episode. If you have any questions for us, feel free to contact destination podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments, and if you're a new listener to the show or a fan of the show and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Gribble Podcasts, or whatever your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us or review your preferred podcast platform.
1: Can I just say, <laughs> can I say, uh, hey, you listen to the podcast? Fuck you, review me. Yeah. <laughs> you, you like it? Fuck you, review me. You don't like it? Fuck you, review me. <laughs>
0: There we go. david any, you put bleeps in there if you need david, to. David, any addition to that any addition to that
2: yeah i mean i think that sums it up
0: <coughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah and finally don't forget to like and follow us on facebook twitter instagram letterbox tiktok all those places david and thomas thank you for joining me and joint doing this 300th episode and being along for the ride during these past few years it's been great thanks for having me man. thanks for having me man. and thank you all for listening we hope you listen to more episodes soon Bye.